This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Dreams in the Witch House by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read for us by Julie Hoverson, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. The story runs one hour, 42 minutes. The Dreams in the Witch House by H.P. Lovecraft. Read by Julie Hoverson. Whether the dreams brought on the fever or the fever brought on the dreams, Walter Gilman did not know. Behind everything crouched the brooding, festering horror of the ancient town, and of the moldy, unhallowed Garrett Gable where he wrote and studied, and wrestled with figures and formulae when he was not tossing on the meager iron bed. His ears were growing sensitive to a preternatural and intolerable degree, and he had long ago stopped the cheap mantel clock whose ticking had come to seem like a thunder of artillery. At night, the subtle stirring of the black city outside, the sinister scurrying of rats in the wormy partitions, and the creaking of hidden timbers in the centuried house were enough to give him a sense of strident pandemonium. The darkness always teemed with unexplained sound, and yet he sometimes shook with fear lest the noises he heard should subside and allow him to hear certain other fainter noises, which he suspected were lurking behind them. He was in the changeless, legend-haunted city of Arkham, with its clustering gambrel roofs that sway and sag over attics, where witches hid from the king's men in the dark olden years of the province. Nor was any spot in that city more steeped in macabre memory than the gable room which harbored him. For it was this house, and this room, which had likewise harbored old Keziah Mason, whose flight from Salem Gale at the last no one was ever able to explain. That was in 1692. The gaoler had gone mad and babbled of a small, white-fanged, furry thing which scuttled out of Keziah's cell, and not even Cotton Mather could explain the curves and angles smeared on the grey stone walls with some red, sticky fluid. Possibly Gilman ought not to have studied so hard. Non-Euclidean calculus and quantum physics are enough to stretch any brain, and when one mixes them with folklore and tries to trace a strange background of multidimensional reality behind the ghoulish hints of the Gothic tales and the wild whispers of the chimney corner, one can hardly expect to be wholly free from mental tension." Gilman came from Haverhill, but it was only after he had entered college in Arkham that he began to connect his mathematics with the fantastic legends of elder magic. Something in the air of the hoary town worked obscurely on his imagination. The professors at Miskatonic had urged him to slacken up, and had voluntarily cut down his courses at several points. Moreover, they had stopped him from consulting the dubious old books on forbidden secrets that were kept under lock and key in a vault at the university library. 
But all these precautions came late in the day, so that Gilman had some terrible hints from the dreaded Necronomicon of Abdul al-Hazred, the fragmentary Book of Ibon, and the suppressed Unasprechlichen Kulten of von Junst to correlate with his abstract formulae on the properties of space and the linkage of dimensions known and unknown. He knew his room was in the old witch-house. That, indeed, was why he had taken it. There was much in the Essex County records about Keziah Mason's trial, and what she had admitted under pressure to the court of Oye and Termine had fascinated Gilman beyond all reason. She had told Judge Hathorne of lines and curves that could be made to point out directions leading through the walls of space to other spaces beyond, and had implied that such lines and curves were frequently used at certain midnight meetings in the dark valley of the white stone beyond Meadow Hill and on the unpeopled island in the river. She had spoken also of the black man, of her oath, and of her new secret name of Nahab. Then she had drawn those devices on the walls of her cell and vanished. Gilman believed strange things about Keziah, and had felt a queer thrill on learning that her dwelling was still standing after more than 235 years. When he heard the hushed Arkham whispers about Keziah's persistent presence in the old house and the narrow streets, about the irregular human tooth marks left on certain sleepers in that and other houses, about the childish cries heard near May Eve and Hallowmass, about the stench often noted in the old house's attic just after those dreaded seasons, and about the small, furry, sharp-toothed thing which haunted the moldering structure and the town and nuzzled people curiously in the black hours before dawn. He resolved to live in the place at any cost. A room was easy to secure, for the house was unpopular, hard to rent, and long given over to cheap lodgings. Gilman could not have told what he expected to find there, but he knew he wanted to be in the building where some circumstance had more or less suddenly given a mediocre old woman of the 17th century an insight into mathematical depths perhaps beyond the utmost modern delvings of Planck, Heisenberg, Einstein, and de Sitter. He studied the timber and plaster walls for traces of cryptic designs at every accessible spot where the paper had peeled, and within a week managed to get the eastern attic room where Keziah was held to have practiced her spells. It had been vacant from the first, for no one had ever been willing to stay there long, but the Polish landlord had grown wary about renting it. Yet nothing whatever happened to Gilman till about the time of the fever. No ghostly Keziah flitted through the somber halls and chambers. No small furry thing crept into his dismal eerie to nuzzle him. And no record of the witch's incantations rewarded his constant search. 
Sometimes he would take walks through shadowy tangles of unpaved, musty-smelling lanes, where eldritch brown houses of unknown age leaned and tottered and leered mockingly through narrow, small-paned windows. Here he knew strange things had happened once, and there was a faint suggestion behind the surface that everything of that monstrous past might not— at least in the darkest, narrowest, and most intricately crooked alleys, have utterly perished. He also rowed out twice to the ill-regarded island in the river, and made a sketch of the singular angles described by the moss-grown rows of grey-standing stones, whose origin was so obscure and immemorial. Gilman's room was of good size, but queerly irregular shape. The north wall slanting perceptibly inward from the outer to the inner end, while the low ceiling slanted gently downward in the same direction. Aside from an obvious rat hole, and the signs of other stopped-up ones, there was no access, nor any appearance of a former avenue of access, to the space which must have existed between the slanting wall and the straight outer wall on the house's north side, though a view from the exterior showed where a window had been boarded up at a very remote date. The loft above the ceiling, which must have had a slanting floor, was likewise inaccessible. When Gilman climbed up a ladder to the cobwebbed level loft above the rest of the attic, he found vestiges of a bygone aperture, tightly and heavily covered with ancient planking, and secured by the stout wooden pegs common in colonial carpentry. No amount of persuasion, however, could induce the stolid landlord to let him investigate either of these two closed spaces. As time wore along, his absorption in the irregular wall and ceiling of his room increased, for he began to read into the odd angles a mathematical significance which seemed to offer vague clues regarding their purpose. Old Keziah, he reflected, might have had excellent reasons for living in a room with peculiar angles, for was it not through certain angles that she claimed to have gone outside the boundaries of the world of space we know? His interest gradually veered away from the unplumbed voids beyond the slanting surfaces, since it now appeared that the purpose of those surfaces concerned the side he was on. The touch of brain fever in the dreams began early in February. For some time, apparently, the curious angles of Gilman's room had been having a strange, almost hypnotic effect on him, and as the bleak winter advanced, he had found himself staring more and more intently at the corner where the down-slanting ceiling met the inward-slanting wall. About this period, his inability to concentrate on his formal studies worried him considerably, his apprehensions about the mid-year examinations being very acute. But the exaggerated sense of hearing was scarcely less annoying. Life had become an insistent and almost unendurable cacophony, and there was that constant terrifying impression of other sounds— perhaps from regions beyond life, trembling on the very brink of audibility. So far as the concrete noises went, the rats in the ancient partitions were the worst. 
Sometimes their scratching seemed not only furtive, but deliberate. When it came from beyond the slanting north wall, it was mixed with a sort of dry rattling. And when it came from the century-closed loft above the slanting ceiling, Gilman always braced himself, as if expecting some horror which only bided its time before descending to engulf him utterly. The dreams were wholly beyond the pale of sanity, and Gilman felt that they must be a result, jointly, of his studies in mathematics and in folklore. He had been thinking too much about the vague regions which his formulae told him must lie beyond the three dimensions we know, and about the possibility that old Keziah Mason, guided by some influence past all conjecture, had actually found the gate to those regions. The yellowed country records containing her testimony and that of her accusers were so damnably suggestive of things beyond human experience, and the descriptions of the darting little furry object which served as her familiar were so painfully realistic despite their incredible details. That object, no larger than a good-sized rat, and quaintly called by the townspeople Brown Jenkins, seemed to have been the fruit of a remarkable case of sympathetic herd delusion, for in 1692 no less than eleven persons had testified to glimpsing it. There were recent rumors, too, with a baffling and disconcerting amount of agreement. Witnesses said it had long hair and the shape of a rat, but that its sharp-toothed, bearded face was evilly human, while its paws were like tiny human hands. It took messages betwixt old Keziah and the devil, and was nursed on the witch's blood, which it sucked like a vampire. Its voice was a kind of loathsome titter, and it could speak all languages. Of all the bizarre monstrosities in Gilman's dreams, nothing filled him with greater panic and nausea than this blasphemous and diminutive hybrid, whose image flitted across his vision in a form a thousandfold more hateful than anything his waking mind had deduced from the ancient records and the modern whispers. Gilman's dreams consisted largely in plunges through limitless abysses of inexplicably colored twilight and bafflingly disordered sound, abysses whose material and gravitational properties, and whose relation to his own entity he could not even begin to explain. He did not walk or climb, fly or swim, crawl or wriggle, yet always experienced a mode of motion partly voluntary and partly involuntary. Of his own condition he could not well judge, for sight of his arms, legs, and torso seemed always cut off by some odd disarrangement of perspective. But he felt that his physical organization and faculties were somehow marvelously transmuted and obliquely projected, though not without a certain grotesque relationship to his normal proportions and properties. 
The abysses were by no means vacant, being crowded with indescribably angled masses of alien-hued substance, some of which appeared to be organic, while others seemed inorganic. A few of the organic objects tended to awake vague memories in the back of his mind, though he could form no conscious idea of what they mockingly resembled or suggested. In the later dreams, he began to distinguish separate categories into which the organic objects appeared to be divided, and which seemed to involve in each case a radically different species of conduct pattern and basic motivation. Of these categories, one seemed to him to include objects slightly less illogical and irrelevant in their motions than the members of the other categories. All the objects organic and inorganic alike, were totally beyond description or even comprehension. Gilman sometimes compared the inorganic matter to prisms, labyrinths, clusters of cubes and planes, and cyclopean buildings, and the organic things struck him variously as groups of bubbles, octopi, centipedes, living Hindu idols, and intricate arabesques roused into a kind of ophidian animation. Everything he saw was unspeakably menacing and horrible, and whenever one of the organic entities appeared by its motions to be noticing him, he felt a stark, hideous fright, which generally jolted him awake. Of how the organic entities moved, he could tell no more than of how he moved himself. In time, he observed a further mystery, the tendency of certain entities to appear suddenly out of empty space, or to disappear totally with equal suddenness. The shrieking, roaring confusion of sound which permeated the abysses was past all analysis as to pitch, timbre, or rhythm, but seemed to be synchronous with vague visual changes in all the indefinite objects, organic and inorganic alike. Gilman had a constant sense of dread that it might rise to some unbearable degree of intensity during one or another of its obscure, relentlessly inevitable fluctuations. But it was not in these vortices of complete alienage that he saw Brown Jenkin. That shocking little horror was reserved for certain lighter, sharper dreams, which assailed him just before he dropped into the fullest depths of sleep. He would be lying in the dark, fighting to keep awake, when a faint lambent glow would seem to shimmer around the centuried room, showing in a violet mist the convergence of angled planes which had seized his brain so insidiously. The horror would appear to pop out of the rat-hole in the corner, and patter toward him over the sagging, wide-planked floor, with evil expectancy in its tiny, bearded human face. But, mercifully, this dream always melted away before the object got close enough to nuzzle him. It had hellishly long, sharp canine teeth. Gilman tried to stop up the rat-hole every day, but each night the real tenants of the partitions would gnaw away the obstruction, whatever it might be. 
Once he had the landlord nail a tin over it, but the next night the rats gnawed a fresh hole, in making which they pushed or dragged out into the room a curious little fragment of bone. Gilman did not report his fever to the doctor, for he knew he could not pass the examinations if ordered to the college infirmary when every moment was needed for cramming. As it was, he failed in Calculus D and Advanced General Psychology, though not without hope of making up lost ground before the end of the term. It was in March when the fresh element entered his lighter preliminary dreaming, and the nightmare shape of Brown Jenkin began to be companioned by the nebulous blur, which grew more and more to resemble a bent old woman. This addition disturbed him more than he could account for, but finally he decided that it was like an ancient crone, whom he had twice actually encountered in the dark tangle of lanes near the abandoned wharves. On those occasions, the evil, sardonic, and seemingly unmotivated stare of the beldame had set him almost shivering, especially the first time when an overgrown rat darting across the shadowed mouth of a neighboring alley had made him think, irrationally, of Brown Jenkin. Now, he reflected, those nervous fears were being mirrored in his disordered dreams. That the influence of the old house was unwholesome he could not deny, but traces of his early morbid interest still held him there. He argued that the fever alone was responsible for his nightly fantasies, and that when the touch abated he would be free from the monstrous visions. Those visions, however, were of absorbing vividness and convincingness, and whenever he awaked he retained a vague sense of having undergone much more than he remembered. He was hideously sure that in unrecalled dreams he had talked with both Brown Jenkin and the old woman, and that they had been urging him to go somewhere with them and to meet a third being of greater potency. Toward the end of March, he began to pick up in his mathematics, though the other studies bothered him increasingly. He was getting an intuitive knack for solving Riemannian equations, and astonished Professor Upham by his comprehension of fourth-dimensional and other problems which had floored all the rest of the class. One afternoon, there was a discussion of possible freakish curvatures in space, and of theoretical points of approach or even contact between our part of the cosmos and various other regions as distant as the farthest stars, or the transgalactic gulfs themselves, or even as fabulously remote as the tentatively conceivable cosmic units beyond the whole Einsteinian space-time continuum. Gilman's handling of this theme filled everyone with admiration, even though some of his hypothetical illustrations caused an increase in the always plentiful gossip about his nervous and solitary eccentricity. What made the students shake their heads was his sober theory that a man might, given mathematical knowledge admittedly beyond all likelihood of human acquirement, step deliberately from the earth to any other celestial body which might lie at one of an infinity of specific points in the cosmic pattern. 
Such a step, he said, would require only two stages. First, a passage out of the three-dimensional sphere we know, and second, a passage back to the three-dimensional sphere at another point, perhaps one of infinite remoteness. That this could be accomplished without loss of life was in many cases conceivable. Any being from any part of three-dimensional space could probably survive in the fourth dimension, and its survival of the second stage would depend upon what alien part of three-dimensional space it might select for its re-entry. Denizens of some planets might be able to live on certain others, even planets belonging to other galaxies or to similar dimensional phases of other space-time continua, though, of course, there must be vast numbers of mutually uninhabitable, even though mathematically juxtaposed, bodies or zones of space. It was also possible that the inhabitants of a given dimensional realm could survive entry to many unknown and incomprehensible realms of additional or indefinitely multiplied dimensions, be they within or outside the given space-time continuum, and that the converse would be likewise true. This was a matter for speculation, though one could be fairly certain that the type of mutation involved in a passage from any given dimensional plane to the next higher one would not be destructive of biological integrity as we understand it. Gilman could not be very clear about his reasons for this last assumption, but his haziness here was more than overbalanced by his clearness on other complex points. Professor Upham especially liked his demonstration of the kinship of higher mathematics to certain phases of magical lore transmitted down the ages from an ineffable antiquity, human or pre-human, whose knowledge of the cosmos and its laws was greater than ours. Around the 1st of April, Gilman worried considerably because his slow fever did not abate. He was also troubled by what some of his fellow lodgers said about his sleepwalking. It seemed that he was often absent from his bed, and that the creaking of his floor at certain hours of the night was remarked by the man in the room below. This fellow also spoke of hearing the tread of shod feet in the night, but Gilman was sure he must have been mistaken in this, since shoes, as well as other apparel, were always precisely in place in the morning. One could develop all sorts of aural delusions in this morbid old house, for did not Gilman himself, even in daylight, now feel certain that noises other than rat-scratching came from the black voids beyond the slanting wall and above the slanting ceiling? His pathologically sensitive ears began to listen for faint footfalls in the immemorially sealed loft overhead— and sometimes the illusion of such things was agonizingly realistic. However, he knew that he had actually become a somnambulist, for twice at night his room had been found vacant, though with all his clothing in place. Of this he had been assured by Frank Elwood, the one fellow student whose poverty forced him to room in this squalid and unpopular house. Elwood had been studying in the small hours and had come up for help on a differential equation, only to find Gilman absent. It had been rather presumptuous of him to open the unlocked door after knocking had failed to rouse a response, 
but he had needed the help very badly, and thought that his host would not mind a gentle prodding awake. On neither occasion, though, had Gilman been there, and when told of the matter, he wondered where he could have been wandering, barefoot and with only his nightclothes on. He resolved to investigate the matter, if reports of his sleepwalking continued, and thought of sprinkling flour on the floor of the corridor to see where his footsteps might lead. The door was the only conceivable egress, for there was no possible foothold outside the narrow window. As April advanced, Gilman's fever-sharpened ears were disturbed by the whining prayers of a superstitious loom-fixer named Joe Mazurowitz, who had a room on the ground floor. Mazurowitz had told long, rambling stories about the ghost of old Keziah and the furry, sharp-fanged, nuzzling thing, and had said he was so badly haunted at times that only his silver crucifix, given him for the purpose by Father Iwanicki of St. Stanislaus's Church, could bring him relief. Now he was praying because the witch's Sabbath was drawing near. May Eve was Walpurgis night, when hell's blackest evil roamed the earth, and all the slaves of Satan gathered for nameless rites and deeds. It was always a very bad time in Arkham, even though the fine folks up in Miskatonic Avenue and high in Saltonstall streets pretended to know nothing about it. There would be bad doings, and a child or two would probably be missing." Joe knew about such things, for his grandmother in the old country had heard tales from her grandmother. It was wise to pray and count one's beads at this season. For three months, Keziah and Brown Jenkin had not been near Joe's room, nor near Paul Choinsky's room, nor anywhere else, and it meant no good when they held off like that. They must be up to something." Gilman dropped in at the doctor's office on the 16th of the month and was surprised to find his temperature was not as high as he had feared. The physician questioned him sharply and advised him to see a nerve specialist. On reflection, he was glad he had not consulted the still more inquisitive college doctor. Old Waldron, who had curtailed his activities before, would have made him take a rest. An impossible thing now that he was so close to great results in his equations— he was certainly near the boundary between the known universe and the fourth dimension, and who could say how much farther he might go? But even as these thoughts came to him, he wondered at the source of his strange confidence. Did all of this perilous sense of imminence come from the formulae on the sheets he covered day by day? The soft, stealthy, imaginary footsteps in the sealed loft above were unnerving. And now, too, there was a growing feeling that somebody was constantly persuading him to do something terrible, which he could not do. How about the somnambulism? Where did he go sometimes in the night? And what was that faint suggestion of sound, which once in a while seemed to trickle through the confusion of identifiable sounds even in broad daylight and full wakefulness? Its rhythm did not correspond to anything on earth, unless perhaps to the cadence of one or two unmentionable Sabbath chants. And sometimes he feared it corresponded to certain attributes of the vague shrieking or roaring in those holy alien abysses of dream. The dreams were meanwhile getting to be atrocious. 
In the lighter preliminary phase, the evil old woman was now of fiendish distinctness, and Gilman knew she was the one who had frightened him in the slums. Her bent back, long nose, and shriveled chin were unmistakable, and her shapeless brown garments were like those he remembered. The expression on her face was one of hideous malevolence and exultation, and when he awaked, he could recall a croaking voice that persuaded and threatened. He must meet the black man and go with them all to the throne of Azatoth at the center of ultimate chaos. That was what she said. He must sign the book of Azatoth in his own blood and take a new secret name now that his independent delvings had gone so far. What kept him from going with her and Brown Jenkin, and the other, to the throne of chaos where the thin flutes pipe mindlessly, was the fact that he had seen the name Azatoth in the Necronomicon, and knew it stood for a primal evil too horrible for description. The old woman always appeared out of thin air near the corner where the downward slant met the inward slant. She seemed to crystallize at a point closer to the ceiling than to the floor, and every night she was a little nearer and more distinct before the dream shifted. Brown Jenkin, too, was always a little nearer at the last, and its yellowish-white fangs glistened shockingly in that unearthly violet phosphorescence. Its shrill, loathsome tittering struck more and more into Gilman's head, and he could remember in the morning how it pronounced the words Azatoth and Nyarlathotep. In the deeper dreams, everything was likewise more distinct, and Gilman felt that the twilight abysses around him were those of the fourth dimension. Those organic entities whose motions seemed least flagrantly irrelevant and unmotivated were probably projections of life-forms from our own planet, including human beings. What the others were in their own dimensional sphere or spheres, he dared not try to think. Two of the less irrelevantly moving things, a rather large congeries of iridescent prolately spheroidal bubbles, and a very much smaller polyhedron of unknown colors and rapidly shifting surface angles, seemed to take notice of him and follow him about, or float ahead as he changed position among the titan prisons, labyrinths, cube and plane clusters and quasi-buildings, and all the while the vague shrieking and roaring waxed louder and louder, as if approaching some monstrous climax of utterly unendurable intensity. During the night of 19th to 20th of April, the new development occurred. Gilman was half-involuntarily moving about in the twilight abysses, with the bubble mass and the small polyhedron floating ahead, when he noticed the peculiarly regular angles formed by the edges of some gigantic neighboring prism clusters. In another second, he was out of the abyss and standing tremulously on a rocky hillside, bathed in intense, diffused green light. He was barefooted and in his nightclothes, and when he tried to walk, discovered that he could scarcely lift his feet. A swirling vapor hid everything but the immediate sloping terrain from sight, and he shrank from the thought of the sounds that might surge out of that vapor. 
Then he saw the two shapes laboriously crawling toward him, the old woman and the little furry thing. The crone strained up to her knees and managed to cross her arms in a singular fashion, while Brown Jenkin pointed in a certain direction with a horribly anthropoid forepaw which it raised with evident difficulty. Spurred by an impulse he did not originate, Gilman dragged himself forward and along a course determined by the angle of the old woman's arms and the direction of the small monstrosity's paw and before he had shuffled three steps, he was back in the twilight abysses. Geometrical shapes seethed around him, and he fell dizzily and interminably. At last he woke in his bed in the crazily angled garret of the eldritch old house. He was good for nothing that morning, and stayed away from all his classes. Some unknown attraction was pulling his eyes in a seemingly irrelevant direction, for he could not help staring at a certain vacant spot on the floor. As the day advanced, the focus of his unseeing eyes changed position, and by noon he had conquered the impulse to stare at vacancy. About two o'clock he went out for lunch, and as he threaded the narrow lanes of the city, he found himself turning always to the southeast. Only an effort halted him at a cafeteria in Church Street, and after the meal he felt the unknown pull still more strongly. He would have to consult a nerve specialist after all. Perhaps there was a connection with his somnambulism. But meanwhile he might at least try to break the morbid spell himself. Undoubtedly he could still manage to walk away from the pole, so with great resolution he headed against it and dragged himself deliberately north along Garrison Street. By the time he had reached the bridge over the Miskatonic, he was in a cold perspiration, and he clutched at the iron railing as he gazed upstream at the ill-regarded island, whose regular lines of ancient standing stones brooded sullenly in the afternoon sunlight. Then he gave a start, for there was a clearly visible living figure on that desolate island, and a second glance told him it was certainly the strange old woman whose sinister aspect had worked itself so disastrously into his dreams. The tall grass near her was moving, too, as if some other living thing were crawling close to the ground. When the old woman began to turn toward him, he fled precipitately off the bridge and into the shelter of the town's labyrinthine waterfront alleys. Distant though the island was, he felt that a monstrous and invincible evil could flow from the sardonic stare of that bent, ancient figure in brown. The southeastward's pull still held, and only with tremendous resolution could Gilman drag himself into the old house and up the rickety stairs. For hours he sat, silent and aimless, with his eyes shifting gradually westward. About six o'clock his sharpened ears caught the whining prayers of Joe Mazurowitz two floors below, and in desperation he seized his hat and walked out into the sunset golden streets, letting the now directly southward pole carry him where it might. An hour later darkness found him in the open fields beyond Hangman's Brook, with the glimmering spring stars shining ahead. The urge to walk was gradually changing to an urge to leap mystically into space, 
and suddenly he realized just where the source of the pole lay. It was in the sky. A definite point among the stars had a claim on him and was calling him. Apparently it was a point somewhere between Hydra and Argo Navis, and he knew that he had been urged toward it ever since he had awaked soon after dawn. In the morning it had been underfoot, and now it was roughly south but stealing toward the west. What was the meaning of this new thing? Was he going mad? How long would it last? Again mustering his resolution, Gilman turned and dragged himself back to the sinister old house. Mazurowitz was waiting for him at the door and seemed both anxious and reluctant to whisper some fresh bit of superstition. It was about the witchlight. Joe had been out celebrating the night before, and it was Patriot's Day in Massachusetts, and had come home after midnight. Looking up at the house from outside, he had thought at first that Gilman's window was dark, but then he had seen the faint violet glow within. He wanted to warn the gentleman about that glow, for everybody in Arkham knew it was Keziah's witchlight, which played near Brown Jenkin and the ghost of the old crone herself. He had not mentioned this before, but now he must tell about it because it meant that Keziah and her long-toothed familiar were haunting the young gentleman. Sometimes he and Paul Choinsky and landlord Dombrowski thought they saw that light seeping out of cracks in the sealed loft above the young gentleman's room, but they had all agreed not to talk about that. However, it would be better for the gentleman to take another room and get a crucifix from some good priest like Father Iwanicki. As the man rambled on, Gilman felt a nameless panic clutch at his throat. He knew that Joe must have been half-drunk when he came home the night before, yet the mention of a violet light in the garret window was of frightful import. It was a lambent glow of the sort which had always played about the old woman and the small furry thing in those lighter, sharper dreams which prefaced his plunge into unknown abysses. And the thought that a wakeful second person could see the dream luminance was utterly beyond sane harborage. Yet where had the fellow got such an odd notion? Had he himself talked as well as walked around the house in his sleep? No, Joe said he had not— but he must check up on this. Perhaps Frank Elwood could tell him something, though he hated to ask. Fever, wild dreams, somnambulism, illusions of sounds, a pull toward a point in the sky, and now a suspicion of insane sleep talking. He must stop studying, see a nerve specialist, and take himself in hand. When he climbed to the second story, he paused at Elwood's door, but saw that the other youth was out. Reluctantly, he continued up to his garret room and sat down in the dark. His gaze was still pulled to the southward, but he also found himself listening intently for some sound in the closed loft above, and half imagining that an evil violet light seeped down through an infinitesimal crack in the low, slanting ceiling. That night, as Gilman slept, the violet light broke upon him with heightened intensity, and the old witch and the small furry thing, getting closer than ever before, mocked him with inhuman squeals and devilish gestures. He was glad to sink into the vaguely roaring twilight abysses, 
though the pursuit of that iridescent bubble conjuries and that kaleidoscopic little polyhedron was menacing and irritating. Then came the shift, as vast converging planes of a slippery-looking substance loomed above and below him, a shift which ended in a flash of delirium and a blaze of unknown alien light, in which yellow, carmine, and indigo were madly and inextricably blended. He was half-lying on a high, fantastically balustrated terrace, above a boundless jungle of outlandish, incredible peaks, balanced plains, domes, minarets, horizontal disks poised on pinnacles, and numberless forms of still greater wildness, some of stone and some of metal, which glittered gorgeously in the mixed, almost blistering glare from a polychromatic sky. Looking upward, he saw three stupendous disks of flame, each of a different hue and at different height above an infinitely distant curving horizon of low mountains. Behind him, tiers of higher terraces towered aloft as far as he could see. The city below stretched away to the limits of vision, and he hoped that no sound would well up from it. The pavement from which he easily raised himself was a veined, polished stone beyond his power to identify, and the tiles were cut in bizarre angled shapes, which struck him as less asymmetrical than based on some unearthly symmetry whose laws he could not comprehend. The balustrade was chest-high, delicate and fantastically wrought, while along the rail were ranged at short intervals little figures of grotesque design and exquisite workmanship. They, like the whole balustrade, seemed to be made of some sort of shining metal, whose color could not be guessed in the chaos of mixed effulgences, and their nature utterly defied conjecture. They represented some ridged, barrel-shaped objects with thin horizontal arms radiating spoke-like from a central ring and with vertical knobs or bulbs projecting from the head and base of the barrel. Each of these knobs was the hub of a system of five long, flat, triangularly tapering arms arranged around it like the arms of a starfish, nearly horizontal but curving slightly away from the central barrel. The base of the bottom knob was fused to the long railing, with so delicate a point of contact that several figures had been broken off and were missing. The figures were about four and a half inches in height, while the spiky arms gave them a maximum diameter of about two and a half inches. When Gilman stood up, the tiles felt hot to his bare feet. He was wholly alone, and his first act was to walk to the balustrade and look dizzily down at the endless Cyclopean city almost two thousand feet below. As he listened, he thought a rhythmic confusion of faint musical pipings, covering a wide tonal range welled up from the narrow streets beneath, and he wished he might discern the denizens of the place. The sight turned him giddy after a while, so that he would have fallen to the pavement had he not clutched instinctively at the lustrous balustrade. His right hand fell on one of the projecting figures, the touch seeming to steady him slightly. It was too much, however, for the exotic delicacy of the metalwork, and the spiky figure snapped off under his grasp. Still half-dazed, he continued to clutch it as his other hand seized a vacant space on the smooth railing.
But now his oversensitive ears caught something behind him, and he looked back across the level terrace. Approaching him softly, though without apparent furtiveness, were five figures, two of which were the sinister old woman and the fanged furry little animal. The other three were what sent him unconscious, for they were living entities about eight feet high, shaped precisely like the spiky images on the balustrade, and propelling themselves by a spider-like wriggling of their lower set of starfish arms. Gilman awoke in his bed, drenched by a cold perspiration, and with a smarting sensation in his face, hands, and feet. Springing to the floor, he washed and dressed in frantic haste, as if it were necessary for him to get out of the house as quickly as possible. He did not know where he wished to go, but felt that once more he would have to sacrifice his classes. The odd pull toward that spot in the sky between Hydra and Argo had abated, but another of even greater strength had taken its place. Now he felt that he must go north, infinitely north. He dreaded to cross the bridge that gave a view of the desolate island and the Miskatonic, so went over the Peabody Avenue Bridge. Very often he stumbled, for his eyes and ears were so chained to an extremely lofty point in the blank blue sky. After about an hour he got himself under better control, and saw that he was far from the city. All around him stretched the bleak emptiness of salt marshes while the narrow road ahead led to Innsmouth, that ancient, half-deserted town which Arkham people were so curiously unwilling to visit. Though the northward pull had not diminished, he resisted it as he had resisted the other pull, and finally found that he could almost balance the one against the other. Plodding back to town and getting some coffee at a soda fountain, he dragged himself to the public library and browsed aimlessly among the lighter magazines. Once he met some friends who remarked how oddly sunburned he looked, but he did not tell them of his walk. At three o'clock he took some lunch at a restaurant, noting meanwhile that the pull had either lessened or divided itself. After that he killed the time at a cheap cinema show, seeing the inane performance over and over again without paying any attention to it. About nine at night, he drifted homeward and shuffled into the ancient house. Joe Mazurowitz was whining unintelligible prayers, and Gilman hastened up to his own garret chamber without pausing to see if Elwood was in. It was when he turned on the feeble electric light that the shock came. At once he saw there was something on the table which did not belong there, and a second look left no room for doubt. Lying on its side, for it could not stand up alone, was the exotic, spiky figure which in his monstrous dream he had broken off the fantastic balustrade. No detail was missing. The ridged, barrel-shaped center, the thin, radiating arms, the knobs at each end, and the flat, slightly outward-curving starfish arms spreading from those knobs. All were there. In the electric light, the color seemed to be a kind of iridescent gray veined with green, and Gilman could see amidst his horror and bewilderment that one of the knobs ended in a jagged break, corresponding to its former point of attachment to the dream railing. 
Only his tendency toward a dazed stupor prevented him from screaming aloud. This fusion of dream and reality was too much to bear. Still dazed, he clutched at the spiky thing and staggered downstairs to Landlord Dombrowski's quarters. The whining prayers of the superstitious loom-fixer were still sounding through the moldy halls, but Gilmud did not mind them now. The landlord was in and greeted him pleasantly. No, he had not seen that thing before, and he did not know anything about it. But his wife had said she found a funny tin thing in one of the beds when she fixed the rooms at noon, and maybe that was it. Dombrowski called her, and she waddled in. Yes, that was the thing. She had found it in the young gentleman's bed, on the side next to the wall. It had looked very queer to her, but of course the young gentleman had lots of queer things in his room. Books and curios and pictures and markings on paper. She certainly knew nothing about it. So Gilman climbed upstairs again in mental turmoil, convinced that he was either still dreaming or that his somnambulism had run to incredible extremes and led him to depredations in unknown places. Where had he got this outre thing? He did not recall seeing it in any museum in Arkham. It must have been somewhere, though, and the sight of it as he snatched it in his sleep must have caused the odd dream picture of the balustrated terrace. Next day, he would make some very guarded inquiries, and perhaps see the nerve specialist. Meanwhile, he would try to keep track of his somnambulism. As he went upstairs and across the garret hall, he sprinkled about some flour which he had borrowed, with a frank admission as to its purpose, from the landlord. He had stopped at Elwood's door on the way, but had found all dark within. Entering his room, he placed the spiky thing on the table and lay down in complete mental and physical exhaustion without pausing to undress. From the closed loft above the slanting ceiling, he thought he heard a faint scratching and padding, but he was too disorganized even to mind it. That cryptical pull from the north was getting very strong again, though it seemed now to come from a, a lower place in the sky. In the dazzling violet light of dream, the old woman and the fanged furry thing came again, and with a greater distinctness than on any former occasion. This time they actually reached him, and he felt the crone's withered claws clutching at him. He was pulled out of bed and into empty space, and for a moment he heard a rhythmic roaring and saw the twilight amorphousness of the vague abysses seething around him. But that moment was very brief, for presently he was in a crude, windowless little space, with rough beams and planks rising to a peak just above his head, and with a curious slanting floor underfoot. Propped level on that floor were low cases full of books of every degree of antiquity and disintegration, and in the center were a table and bench, both apparently fastened in place. Small objects of unknown shape and nature were ranged on the tops of the cases, and in the flaming violet light Gilman thought he saw a counterpart of the spiky image which had puzzled him so horribly. On the left, the floor fell abruptly away, leaving a black triangular gulf, out of which, after a second's dry rattling, there presently climbed the hateful little furry thing with the yellow fangs and bearded human face. The evilly grinning beldam still clutched him, and beyond the table stood a figure he had never seen before, a tall, lean man of dead black coloration, but without the slightest sign of negroid features. 
wholly devoid of either hair or beard, and wearing as his only garment a shapeless robe of some heavy black fabric. His feet were indistinguishable because of the table and bench, but he must have been shod, since there was a clicking whenever he changed position. The man did not speak, and bore no trace of expression on his small, regular features. He merely pointed to a book of prodigious size which lay open on the table, while the beldam thrust a huge grey quill into Gilman's right hand. Over everything was a pall of intensely maddening fear, and the climax was reached when the furry thing ran up the dreamer's clothing to his shoulders and then down his left arm, finally biting him sharply in the wrist just below his cuff. As the blood spurted from this wound, Gilman lapsed into a faint. He awaked on the morning of the 22nd with a pain in his left wrist, and saw that his cuff was brown with dried blood. His recollections were very confused, but the scene with the black man in the unknown space stood out vividly. The rats must have bitten him as he slept, giving rise to the climax of that frightful dream. Opening the door, he saw that the flower on the corridor floor was undisturbed except for the huge prints of the loutish fellow who roomed at the other end of the garret. So he had not been sleepwalking this time. But something would have to be done about those rats. He would speak to the landlord about them. Again he tried to stop up the hole at the base of the slanting wall, wedging in a candlestick which seemed of about the right size. His ears were ringing horribly as if with the residual echoes of some horrible noise heard in dreams. As he bathed and changed clothes, he tried to recall what he had dreamed after the scene in the violet-litten space, but nothing definite would crystallize in his mind. That scene itself must have corresponded to the sealed loft overhead, which had begun to attack his imagination so violently. But later impressions were faint and hazy. There were suggestions of the vague twilight abysses, and of still vaster, blacker abysses beyond them, abysses in which all fixed suggestions were absent. He had been taken there by the bubble conjuries and the little polyhedron which always dogged him. But they, like himself, had changed to wisps of mist in this farther void of ultimate blackness. Something else had gone on ahead, a larger wisp which now and then condensed into nameless approximations of form, and he thought that their progress had not been in a straight line— but rather along the alien curves and spirals of some ethereal vortex which obeyed laws unknown to the physics and mathematics of any conceivable cosmos. Eventually, there had been a hint of vast leaping shadows, of a monstrous half-acoustic pulsing, and of the thin, monotonous piping of an unseen flute. But that was all. Gilman decided he had picked up that last conception from what he had read in the Necronomicon about the mindless entity Azatoth, which rules all time and space from a black throne at the center of chaos. When the blood was washed away, the wrist wound proved very slight, and Gilman puzzled over the location of the two tiny punctures. It occurred to him that there was no blood on the bedspread where he had lain— which was very curious in view of the amount on his skin and cuff. 
Had he been sleepwalking within his room? And had the rat bitten him as he sat in some chair or paused in some less rational position? He looked in every corner for brownish drops or stains, but did not find any. He had better, he thought, sprinkle flour within the room as well as outside the door, though, after all, no further proof of his sleepwalking was needed. He knew he did walk, and the thing to do now was to stop it. He must ask Frank Elwood for help. This morning the strange poles from space seemed lessened, though they were replaced by another sensation even more inexplicable. It was a vague, insistent impulse to fly away from his present situation, but held not a hint of the specific direction in which he wished to fly. As he picked up the strange, spiky image on the table, he thought the older northward pull grew a trifle stronger, but even so it was wholly overruled by the newer and more bewildering urge. He took the spiky image down to Elwood's room, steeling himself against the winds of the loom fixer which welled up from the ground floor. Elwood was in, thank heaven, and appeared to be stirring about. There was time for a little conversation before leaving for breakfast and college, so Gilman hurriedly poured forth an account of his recent dreams and fears. His host was very sympathetic and agreed that something ought to be done. He was shocked by his guest's drawn, haggard aspect, and noticed the queer, abnormal-looking sunburn which others had remarked during the past week. There was not much, though, that he could say. He had not seen Gilman on any sleepwalking expedition, and he had no idea what the curious image could be. He had, though, heard the French-Canadian who lodged just under Gilman talking to Missourowitz one evening. They were telling each other how badly they dreaded the coming of Walpurgis Night, now only a few days off, and were exchanging pitying comments about the poor, doomed young gentleman. Desrochers, the fellow under Gilman's room, had spoken of nocturnal footsteps, shod and unshod, and of the violet light he saw one night when he had stolen fearfully up to peer through Gilman's keyhole. He had not dared to peer, he told Mizorowitz, after he had glimpsed that light through the cracks around the door. There had been soft talking, too, and as he began to describe it, his voice had sunk to an inaudible whisper. Elwood could not imagine what had set these superstitious creatures gossiping, but suppose their imaginations had been roused by Gilman's late hours and somnolent walking and talking on the one hand, and by the nearness of traditionally feared May Eve on the other hand. That Gilman talked in his sleep was plain, and it was obviously from Desrochers' keyhole listenings that the delusive notion of the violet dreamlight had got abroad. These simple people were quick to imagine they had seen any odd thing they'd heard about. As for a plan of action, Gilman had better move down to Elwood's room and avoid sleeping alone. Elwood would, if awake, rouse him whenever he began to talk or rise in his sleep. Very soon, too, he must see the specialist. Meanwhile, they would take the spiky image around to the various museums and to certain professors, seeking identification and stating that it had been found in a public rubbish can. Also, Dombrowski must attend to the poisoning of those rats in the walls. Braced up by Elwood's companionship, Gilman attended classes that day. Strange urges still tugged at him, but he could sidetrack them with considerable success. 
During a free period, he showed the queer image to several professors, all of whom were intensely interested, though none of them could shed any light upon its nature or origin. That night he slept on a couch which Elwood had had the landlord bring to the second-story room, and for the first time in weeks was wholly free from disquieting dreams. But the feverishness still hung on, and the whines of the loom-fixer were an unnerving influence. During the next few days, Gilman enjoyed an almost perfect immunity from morbid manifestations. He had, Elwood said, showed no tendency to talk or rise in his sleep, and meanwhile the landlord was putting rat poison everywhere. The only disturbing element was the talk among the superstitious foreigners whose imaginations had become highly excited. Mazurowitz was always trying to make him get a crucifix, and finally forced one upon him which he said had been blessed by the good father Iwaniki. Desrochers, too, had something to say. In fact, he insisted that cautious steps had sounded in the now vacant room above him on the first and second nights of Gilman's absence from it. Paul Choinsky thought he heard sounds in the halls and on the stairs at night, and claimed that his door had been softly tried, while Miss Dombrowski vowed she had seen Brown Jenkin for the first time since All Hollows. But such naive reports could mean very little, and Gilman let the cheap metal crucifix hang idly from a knob on his host's dresser. For three days, Gilman and Elwood canvassed the local museums in an effort to identify the strange spiky image, but always without success. In every quarter, however, interest was intense, for the utter alienage of the thing was a tremendous challenge to scientific curiosity. One of the small radiating arms was broken off and subjected to chemical analysis. Professor Ellery found platinum, iron, and tellurium in the strange alloy— but mixed with these were at least three other apparent elements of high atomic weight, which chemistry was absolutely powerless to classify. Not only did they fail to correspond with any known element, but they did not even fit the vacant places reserved for probable elements in the periodic system. The mystery remains unsolved to this day, though the image is on exhibition at the Museum of Miskatonic University. On the morning of April 27th, a fresh rat hole appeared in the room where Gilman was a guest, but Dombrowski tinned it up during the day. The poison was not having much effect, for scratchings and scurryings in the walls were virtually undiminished. Elwood was out late that night, and Gilman waited up for him. He did not wish to go to sleep in a room alone, especially since he thought he had glimpsed in the evening twilight the repellent old woman whose image had become so horribly transferred to his dreams. He wondered who she was, and what had been near her rattling the tin can in a rubbish heap at the mouth of a squalid courtyard. The crone had seemed to notice him and leer evilly at him, though perhaps this was merely his imagination." The next day both youths felt very tired and knew they would sleep like logs when night came. In the evening they drowsily discussed the mathematical studies, which had so completely and perhaps harmfully engrossed Gilman, and speculated about the linkage with ancient magic and folklore which seemed so darkly probable. They spoke of old Keziah Mason, and Elwood agreed that Gilman had good scientific grounds for thinking she might have stumbled on strange and significant information. 
The hidden cults to which these witches belonged often guarded and handed down surprising secrets from elder forgotten eons. And it was by no means impossible that Keziah had actually mastered the art of passing through dimensional gates. Tradition emphasizes the uselessness of material barriers in halting a witch's motions, and who can say what underlies the old tales of broomstick rides through the night? Whether a modern student could ever gain similar powers from mathematical research alone was still to be seen. Success, Gilman added, might lead to dangerous and unthinkable situations, for who could foretell the conditions pervading an adjacent but normally inaccessible dimension? On the other hand, the picturesque possibilities were enormous. Time could not exist in certain belts of space, and by entering and remaining in such a belt one might preserve one's life and age indefinitely, never suffering organic metabolism or deterioration except for slight amounts incurred during visits to one's own or similar planes. One might, for example, pass into a timeless dimension and emerge at some remote period of the Earth's history as young as before. Whether anybody had ever managed to do this, one could hardly conjecture with any degree of authority. Old legends are hazy and ambiguous, and in historic times all attempts at crossing forbidden gaps seem complicated by strange and terrible alliances with beings and messengers from outside. There was the immemorial figure of the deputy or messenger of hidden and terrible powers, the black man of the witch cult and the Nyarlathotep of the Necronomicon. There was, too, the baffling problem of the lesser messengers or intermediaries, the quasi-animals and queer hybrids which legend depicts as witches' familiars. As Gilman and Elwood retired, too sleepy to argue further, they heard Joe Mazurowitz reel into the house half-drunk and shuddered at the desperate wildness of his whining prayers. That night Gilman saw the violet light again. In his dream, he had heard a scratching and gnawing in the partitions and thought that someone fumbled clumsily at the latch. Then he saw the old woman and the small furry thing advancing toward him over the carpeted floor. The beldame's face was alight with inhuman exultation, and the little yellow-toothed morbidity tittered mockingly as it pointed at the heavily sleeping form of Elwood on the other couch across the room. A paralysis of fear stifled all attempts to cry out as once before the hideous crone seized Gilman by the shoulders, yanking him out of bed and into empty space. Again, the infinitude of the shrieking abysses flashed past him, but in another second he thought he was in a dark, muddy, unknown alley of fetid odors, with the rotting walls of ancient houses towering up on every hand. Ahead was the robed black man he had seen in the peaked space in the other dream, while from a lesser distance the old woman was beckoning and grimacing imperiously. Brown Jenkin was rubbing itself with a kind of affectionate playfulness around the ankles of the black man, which the deep mud largely concealed. There was a dark open doorway on the right, to which the black man silently pointed. Into this the grinning crone started, dragging Gilman after her by his pajama sleeves. 
There were evil-smelling staircases which creaked ominously, and on which the old woman seemed to radiate a faint violet light, and finally a door leading off a landing. The crone fumbled with the latch and pushed the door open, motioning to Gilman to wait, and disappearing inside the black aperture. The youth's oversensitive ears caught a hideous strangled cry, and presently the beldam came out of the room bearing a small, senseless form which she thrust at the dreamer as if ordering him to carry it. The sight of this form and the expression on its face broke the spell. Still too dazed to cry out, he plunged recklessly down the noisome staircase and into the mud outside, halting only when seized and choked by the waiting black man. As consciousness departed, he heard the faint, shrill tittering of the fanged, rat-like abnormality. On the morning of the twenty-ninth, Gilman awaked into a maelstrom of horror. The instant he opened his eyes, he knew something was terribly wrong, for he was back in his old garret room with the slanting wall and ceiling sprawled on the now unmade bed. His throat was aching inexplicably, and as he struggled to a sitting posture, he saw with growing fright that his feet and pajama bottoms were brown with caked mud. For the moment, his recollections were hopelessly hazy, but he knew at least that he must have been sleepwalking. Elwood had been lost too deeply in slumber to hear and stop him. On the floor were confused, muddy prints, but oddly enough, they did not extend all the way to the door. The more Gilman looked at them, the more peculiar they seemed, for in addition to those he could recognize as his, there were some smaller, almost round markings, such as the legs of a large chair or a table might make, except that most of them tended to be divided into halves. There were also some curious muddy rat tracks, leading out of a fresh hole and back into it again. Utter bewilderment and the fear of madness racked Gilman as he staggered to the door and saw that there were no muddy prints outside. The more he remembered of his hideous dream, the more terrified he felt, and it added to his desperation to hear Joe Mazurowitz chanting mournfully two floors below. Descending to Elwood's room, he roused his still-sleeping host and began telling of how he had found himself, but Elwood could form no idea of what might really have happened, where Gilman could have been, how he got back to his room without making tracks in the hall, and how the muddy furniture-like prints came to be mixed with his in the garret chamber were wholly beyond conjecture. Then there were those dark, livid marks on his throat, as if he had tried to strangle himself. He put his hands up to them, but found that they did not even approximately fit. While they were talking, Desrochers dropped in to say that he had heard a terrific clattering overhead in the dark small hours. No, there had been no one on the stairs after midnight, though just before midnight he had heard faint footfalls in the garret, and cautiously descending steps he did not like. It was, he added, a very bad time of year for Arkham. The young gentleman had better be sure to wear the crucifix Joe Mazurkowitz had given him. Even the daytime was not safe, for after dawn there had been strange sounds in the house, especially a thin childish wail hastily choked off. 
Gilman mechanically attended classes that morning, but was wholly unable to fix his mind on his studies. A mood of hideous apprehension and expectancy had seized him, and he seemed to be awaiting the fall of some annihilating blow. At noon, he lunched at the university spa, picking up a paper from the next seat as he waited for dessert. But he never ate that dessert for an item on the paper's first page left him limp, wild-eyed, and able only to pay his check and stagger back to Elwood's room. There had been a strange kidnapping the night before in Orne's gangway, and the two-year-old child of a clawed-like laundry worker named Anastasia Waleko had completely vanished from sight. The mother, it appeared, had feared the event for some time, but the reasons she assigned for her fear were so grotesque that no one took them seriously. She had, she said, seen Brown Jenkin about the place now and then ever since early in March, and knew from its grimaces and titterings that little Ladislas must be marked for sacrifice at the awful Sabbath on Walpurgis night. She had asked her neighbor Mary Chanick to sleep in the room and try to protect the child, but Mary had not dared. She could not tell the police, for they never believed such things. Children had been taken that way every year since she could remember. And her friend, Pete Stowaki, would not help, because he wanted the child out of the way. But what threw Gilman into a cold perspiration was the report of a pair of revelers who had been walking past the mouth of the gangway just after midnight. They admitted they had been drunk, but both vowed they had seen a crazily dressed trio furtively entering the dark passageway. There had, they said, been a huge robed negro, a little old woman in rags, and a young white man in his night clothes. The old woman had been dragging the youth, while around the feet of the negro a tame rat was rubbing and weaving in the brown mud. Gilman sat in a daze all the afternoon, and Elwood, who had meanwhile seen the papers and formed terrible conjectures from them, found him thus when he came home. This time neither could doubt but that something hideously serious was closing in around them. Between the phantasms of nightmare and the realities of the objective world, a monstrous and unthinkable relationship was crystallizing, and only stupendous vigilance could avert still more direful developments. Gilman must see a specialist sooner or later, but not just now, when all the papers were full of this kidnapping business. Just what had really happened was maddeningly obscure, and for a moment both Gilman and Elwood exchanged whispered theories of the wildest kind. Had Gilman unconsciously succeeded better than he knew in his studies of space and its dimensions? Had he actually slipped outside our sphere to points unguessed and unimaginable? Where, if anywhere, had he been on those nights of demoniac alienage? The roaring twilight abysses, the green hillside, the blistering terrace, the poles from the stars, the ultimate black vortex, the black man, the muddy alley and the stairs, the old witch and the fanged furry horror, the bubble congeries and the little polyhedron, the strange sunburn, the wrist wound, the unexplained image, the muddy feet, the throat marks, the tales and fears of the superstitious foreigners. What did it all mean? To what extent could the laws of sanity apply to such a case? There was no sleep for either of them that night, but next day they both cut classes and drowsed. 
This was April 30th, and with the dusk would come the hellish Sabbath time which all the foreigners and the superstitious old folk feared. Mazurowitz came home at six o'clock and said people at the mill were whispering that the Walpurgis revels would be held in the dark ravine beyond Meadow Hill, where the old white stone stands in a place queerly devoid of all plant life. Some of them had even told the police and advised them to look there for the missing Willeko child, but they did not believe anything would be done. Joe insisted that the poor young gentleman wear his nickel-chained crucifix, and Gilman put it on and dropped it inside his shirt to humor the fellow. Late at night, the two youths sat drowsing in their chairs, lulled by the praying of the loom-fixer on the floor below. Gilman listened as he nodded, his preternaturally sharpened hearing seeming to strain for some subtle, dreaded murmur beyond the noises in the ancient house. Unwholesome recollections of things in the Necronomicon and the Black Book welled up, and he found himself swaying to infandus rhythms said to pertain to the blackest ceremonies of the Sabbath, and to have an origin outside the time and space we comprehend. Presently he realized what he was listening for, the hellish chant of the celebrants in the distant black valley. How did he know so much about what they expected? How did he know the time when Nahab and her acolyte were due to bear the brimming bowl which would follow the black cock and the black goat? He saw that Elwood had dropped asleep and tried to call out and waken him. Something, however, closed his throat. He was not his own master. Had he signed the black man's book after all? Then his fevered, abnormal hearing caught the distant, wind-borne notes. Over miles of hill and field and alley they came, but he recognized them nonetheless. The fires must be lit, and the dancers must be starting in. How could he keep himself from going? What was it that had enmeshed him? Mathematics, folklore, the house, old Keziah, brown Jenkin? And now he saw that there was a fresh rat-hole in the wall near his couch." Above the distant chanting and the nearer praying of Joe Mazurowitz came another sound, a stealthy, determined scratching in the partitions. He hoped the electric lights would not go out. Then he saw the fanged, bearded little face in the rat hole, the accursed little face which he at last realized bore such a shocking, mocking resemblance to old Keziah's, and heard the faint fumbling at the door. The screaming twilight abysses flashed before him, and he felt himself helpless in the formless grasp of the iridescent bubble congeries. Ahead raced the small kaleidoscopic polyhedron, and all through the churning void there was a heightening and acceleration of the vague tonal pattern which seemed to foreshadow some unutterable and unendurable climax. He seemed to know what was coming, the monstrous burst of Walpurgis rhythm in whose cosmic timbre would be concentrated all the primal, ultimate space-time seethings which lie behind the massed spheres of matter and sometimes break forth in measured reverberations that penetrate faintly to every layer of entity and give hideous significance throughout the worlds to certain dreaded periods. But all this vanished in a second. He was again in the cramped, violet-litten, peaked space with the slanting floor, the low cases of ancient books, the bench and table, the queer objects, and the triangular gulf at one side. 
On the table lay a small white figure, an infant boy, unclothed and unconscious, while on the other side stood the monstrous, leering old woman, with a gleaming, grotesque, hafted knife in her right hand, and a queerly proportioned pale metal bowl, covered with curiously chased designs, and having delicate lateral handles in her left. She was intoning some croaking ritual in a language which Gilman could not understand, but which seemed like something guardedly quoted in the Necronomicon. As the scene grew clearer, he saw the ancient crone bend forward and extend the empty bowl across the table, and unable to control his own emotions, he reached far forward and took it in both hands, noticing as he did so its comparative lightness. At the same moment, the disgusting form of Brown Jenkins scrambled up over the brink of the triangular black gulf on his left. The crone now motioned him to hold the bowl in a certain position while she raised the huge, grotesque knife above the small white victim as high as her right hand could reach. The fanged, furry thing began tittering a continuation of the unknown ritual, while the witch croaked loathsome responses— Gilman felt a gnawing, poignant abhorrence shoot through his mental and emotional paralysis, and the light metal bowl shook in his grasp. A second later, the downward motion of the knife broke the spell completely, and he dropped the bowl with a resounding bell-like clangor while his hands darted out frantically to stop the monstrous deed. In an instant, he had edged up the slanting floor around the end of the table and wrenched the knife from the old woman's claws, sending it clattering over the brink of the narrow triangular gulf. In another instant, however, matters were reversed, for those murderous claws had locked themselves tightly around his own throat, while the wrinkled face was twisted with insane fury. He felt the chain of the cheap crucifix grinding into his neck, and in his peril wondered how the sight of the object itself would affect the evil creature. Her strength was altogether superhuman, but as she continued her choking, he reached feebly in his shirt and drew out the metal symbol, snapping the chain and pulling it free. At sight of the device, the witch seemed struck with panic, and her grip relaxed long enough to give Gilman a chance to break it entirely. He pulled the steel-like claws from his neck, and would have dragged the beldame over the edge of the gulf had not the claws received a fresh access of strength and closed in again. This time he resolved to reply in kind, and his own hands reached out for the creature's throat. Before she saw what he was doing, he had the chain of the crucifix twisted about her neck, and a moment later he had tightened it enough to cut off her breath. During her last struggle, he felt something bite at his ankle and saw that Brown Jenkin had come to her aid. With one savage kick, he sent the morbidity over the edge of the gulf and heard it whimper on some level far below. Whether he had killed the ancient crone, he did not know, but he let her rest on the floor where she had fallen. Then, as he turned away, he saw on the table a sight which nearly snapped the last thread of his reason. Brown Jenkin, tough of sinew and with four tiny hands of demoniac dexterity, had been busy while the witch was throttling him, and his efforts had been in vain. What he had prevented the knife from doing to the victim's chest, the yellow fangs of the furry blasphemy had done to a wrist, and the bowl, so lately on the floor, stood full beside the small, lifeless body. 
In his dream delirium, Gilman heard the hellish alien rhythm chant of the Sabbat coming from an infinite distance, and he knew the black man must be there. Confused memories mixed themselves with his mathematics, and he believed his subconscious mind held the angles which he needed to guide him back to the normal world, alone and unaided for the first time. He felt sure he was in the immemorially sealed loft above his own room, but whether he could ever escape through the slanting floor or the long-stopped egress he doubted greatly. Besides, would not an escape from a dream loft bring him merely into a dream house? An abnormal projection of the actual place he sought? He was wholly bewildered as to the relation betwixt dream and reality in all his experiences. The passage through the vague abysses would be frightful, for the Walpurgis rhythm would be vibrating, and at last he would have to hear that hitherto veiled cosmic pulsing which he so mortally dreaded. Even now he could detect a low, monstrous shaking whose tempo he suspected all too well. At Sabbath time it always mounted and reached through to the worlds to summon the initiate to nameless rites. Half the chants of the Sabbath were patterned on this faintly overheard pulsing which no earthly ear could endure in its unveiled spatial fullness. Gilman wondered, too, whether he could trust his instincts to take him back to the right part of space. How could he be sure he would not land on that green-litten hillside of a far planet, on the tessellated terrace above the city of tentacled monsters, somewhere beyond the galaxy, or in the spiral black vortices of that ultimate void of chaos where reigns the mindless demon sultan Azatoth? Just before he made the plunge, the violet light went out and left him in utter blackness. The witch, old Keziah, Nahab, that must have meant her death. And mixed with the distant chant of the Sabbath and the whimpers of Brown Jenkin in the gulf below, he thought he heard another and wilder whine from unknown depths. Joe Mazurowitz, the prayers against the crawling chaos, now turning to an inexplicably triumphant shriek, worlds of sardonic actuality impinging on vortices of febrile dream. Ea, Shubnigarath, the goat with a thousand young! They found Gilman on the floor of his queerly angled old garret room, long before dawn, for the terrible cry had brought Desrochers and Choinsky and Dombrowski and Mazurowitz at once, and even had wakened the soundly sleeping Elwood in his chair. He was alive, and with open staring eyes, but seemed largely unconscious. On his throat were the marks of murderous hands, and on his left ankle was a distressing rat-bite. His clothing was badly rumpled, and Joe's crucifix was missing. Elwood trembled, afraid to even speculate what new form his friend's sleepwalking had taken. Mazurowitz seemed half-dazed because of a sign he said he had had in response to his prayers, and he crossed himself frantically when the squealing and whimpering of a rat sounded from beyond the slanting partition. When the dreamer was settled on his couch in Elwood's room, they sent for Dr. Malkowski, a local practitioner who would repeat no tales where they might prove embarrassing and he gave Gilman two hypodermic injections which caused him to relax in something like natural drowsiness. 
During the day, the patient regained consciousness at times and whispered his newest dream disjointedly to Elwood. It was a painful process, and at its very start brought out a fresh and disconcerting fact. Gilman, whose ears had so lately possessed an abnormal sensitiveness, was now stone deaf. Dr. Malkowski, summoned again in haste, told Elwood that both eardrums were ruptured, as if by the impact of some stupendous sound intense beyond all human conception or endurance. How such a sound could have been heard in the last few hours without arousing all the Miskatonic Valley was more than the honest physician could say. Elwood wrote his part of the colloquy on paper, so that a fairly easy communication was maintained. Neither knew what to make of the whole chaotic business, and decided it would be better if they thought as little as possible about it. Both, though, agreed that they must leave this ancient and accursed house as soon as it could be arranged. Evening papers spoke of a police raid on some curious revelers in a ravine— beyond Meadow Hill, just before dawn, and mentioned that the white stone there was an object of age-long superstitious regard. Nobody had been caught, but among the scattering fugitives had been glimpsed a huge negro. In another column, it was stated that no trace of the missing child, Ladislas Waleko, had been found. The crowning horror came that very night. Elwood will never forget it, and was forced to stay out of college the rest of the term because of the resulting nervous breakdown. He had thought he heard rats in the partition all the evening, but paid little attention to them. Then long after both he and Gilman had retired, the atrocious shrieking began. Elwood jumped up, turned on the lights, and rushed over to his guest's couch— the occupant was admitting sounds of veritably inhuman nature, as if racked by some torment beyond description. He was writhing under the bedclothes, and a great stain was beginning to appear on the blankets. Elwood scarcely dared to touch him, but gradually the screaming and writhing subsided. By this time, Dombrowski, Choinsky, De Rocher, Mizurowitz, and the top-floor lodger were all crowding into the doorway, and the landlord had sent his wife back to telephone for Dr. Malkowski. Everybody shrieked when a large rat-like form suddenly jumped out from beneath the ensanguined bedclothes and scuttled across the floor to a fresh open hole close by. When the doctor arrived and began to pull down those frightful covers, Walter Gilman was dead. It would be barbarous to do more than suggest what had killed Gilman. There had been virtually a tunnel through his body. Something had eaten his heart out. Dombrowski, frantic at the failure of his rat-poisoning efforts, cast aside all thoughts of his lease, and within a week had moved with all his older lodgers to a dingy but less ancient house in Walnut Street. The worst thing for a while was keeping Joe Mazurowitz quiet, for the brooding loom-fixer would never stay sober, and was constantly whining and muttering about spectral and terrible things. It seems that on that last hideous night Joe had stooped to look at the crimson rat-tracks which led from Gilman's couch to the nearby hole. On the carpet they were very indistinct, but a piece of open flooring intervened between the carpet's edge and the baseboard. 
There, Mazurowitz had found something monstrous, or thought he had, for no one else could quite agree with him, despite the undeniable queerness of the prince. The tracks on the flooring were certainly vastly unlike the average prince of a rat, but even Choinsky and Desrochers would not admit that they were like the prince of four tiny human hands. The house was never rented again. As soon as Dombrowski left it, the pall of its final desolation began to descend, for people shunned it both on account of its old reputation and because of the new fetid odor. Perhaps the ex-landlord's rat poison had worked after all, for not long after his departure the place became a neighborhood nuisance. Health officials traced the smell to the closed spaces above and beside the eastern garret room and agreed that the number of dead rats must be enormous. They decided, however, that it was not worth their while to hew open and disinfect the long-sealed spaces, for the fetter would soon be over, and the locality was not one which encouraged fastidious standards. Indeed, there were always vague local tales of unexplained stenches upstairs in the witch-house, just after May Eve and Hallowmas. The neighbors acquiesced in the inertia, but the fetter nonetheless formed an additional count against the place. Toward the last, the house was condemned as a habitation by the building inspector. Gilman's dreams and their attendant circumstances have never been explained. Elwood, whose thoughts on the entire episode are sometimes almost maddening, came back to college the next autumn and was graduated in the following June. He found the spectral gossip of the town much diminished, and it is indeed a fact that, notwithstanding certain reports of a ghostly tittering in the deserted house, which lasted almost as long as that edifice itself, no fresh appearances either of old Keziah or of Brown Jenkin have been muttered of since Gilman's death. It is rather fortunate that Elwood was not in Arkham in that later year when certain events abruptly renewed the local whispers about elder horrors. Of course, he heard about the matter afterward, and suffered untold torments of black and bewildered speculation, but even that was not as bad as actual nearness, and several possible sites would have been. In March 1931, a gale wrecked the roof and great chimney of the vacant witch-house, so that a chaos of crumbling bricks, blackened moss-grown shingles, and rotting planks and timbers crashed down into the loft and broke through the floor beneath. The whole attic story was choked with debris from above, but no one took the trouble to touch the mess before the inevitable raising of the decrepit structure. That ultimate step came in the following December, and it was when Gilman's old room was cleared out by reluctant, apprehensive workmen that the gossip began. Among the rubbish which had crashed through the ancient slanting ceiling were several things which made the workmen pause and call in the police. Later, the police in turn called in the coroner and several professors from the university. There were bones, badly crushed and splintered, but clearly recognizable as human, whose manifestly modern date conflicted puzzlingly with the remote period at which their only possible lurking place, the low slant-floored loft overhead, had supposedly been sealed from all human access. The coroner's physician decided that some belonged to a small child, while certain others, found mixed with shreds of rotten brownish cloth, belonged to a rather undersized, bent female of advanced years. 
Careful sifting of debris also disclosed many tiny bones of rats caught in the collapse, as well as older rat bones gnawed by small fangs, in a fashion now and then highly productive of controversy and reflection. Other objects found included the mangled fragments of many books and papers, together with a yellowish dust left from the total disintegration of still older books and papers. All, without exception, appeared to deal with black magic in its most advanced and horrible forms, and the evidently recent date of certain items is still a mystery as unsolved as that of the modern human bones. An even greater mystery is the absolute homogeneity of the crabbed archaic writing found on a wide range of papers whose conditions and watermarks suggest age differences of at least 150 to 200 years. To some, though, the greatest mystery of all is the variety of utterly inexplicable objects. Objects whose shapes, materials, types of workmanship, and purposes baffle all conjecture— found scattered amidst the wreckage in evidently diverse states of injury. One of these things, which excited several Miskatonic professors profoundly, is a badly damaged monstrosity plainly resembling the strange image which Gilman gave to the College Museum, save that it is large, wrought of some peculiar bluish stone instead of metal, and possessed of a singularly angled pedestal with undecipherable hieroglyphics. Archaeologists and anthropologists are still trying to explain the bizarre designs chased on a crushed bowl of light metal whose inner side bore ominous brownish stains when found. Foreigners and credulous grandmothers are equally garrulous about the modern nickel crucifix with broken chain mixed in the rubbish and shiveringly identified by Joe Mazurowitz as that which he had given poor Gilman many years before. Some believe this crucifix was dragged up to the sealed loft by rats, while others think it must have been on the floor in some corner of Gilman's old room at the time. Still others, including Joe himself, have theories too wild and fantastic for sober credence. When the slanting wall of Gilman's room was torn out, the once-sealed triangular space between that partition and the house's north wall was found to contain much less structural debris, even in proportion to its size, than the room itself, though it had a ghastly layer of older materials which paralyzed the wreckers with horror. In brief, the floor was a veritable ossuary of the bones of small children— some fairly modern, but others extending back in infinite gradations to a period so remote that the crumbling was almost complete. On this deep bony layer rested a knife of great size, obvious antiquity, and grotesque, ornate, and exotic design, above which the debris was piled. In the midst of this debris, wedged between a fallen plank and a cluster of cemented bricks from the ruined chimney— was an object destined to cause more bafflement, veiled fright, and openly superstitious talk in Arkham than anything else discovered in the haunted and accursed building. This object was the partly crushed skeleton of a huge, diseased rat, whose abnormalities of form are still a topic of debate and source of singular reticence among the members of Miskatonic's Department of Comparative Anatomy. 
Very little concerning this skeleton has leaked out, but the workmen who found it whisper in shocked tones about the long brownish hairs with which it was associated. The bones of the tiny paws, it is rumored, imply prehensile characteristics more typical of a diminutive monkey than of a rat, while the small skull, with its savage yellow fangs, is of the utmost anomalousness, appearing from certain angles like a miniature, monstrously degraded parody of a human skull. The workmen crossed themselves in fright when they came upon this blasphemy, but later burned candles of gratitude in St. Stanislaus's church because of the shrill, ghostly tittering they felt they would never hear again. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie Hoverson of 19 Nocturne Boulevard. And I'm Mirko. I'm from OckhamInsiders.com. Right, your new podcast. And my name's John Feaster. And we're going to be talking about The Dreams in the Witch House by H.P. Lovecraft uh, from 1933? Uh, 32, I think. Uh, yeah, 33 was when it was published. Sorry. Yes. So... I think this is a pretty terrible short story. Um, oh. For a Lovecraft story, what do you guys think? Uh, I like which it, story? Oh, <laughs> The Dreams in the Witch House. No, no, I, because it's really two stories. There's this kind of awesome build-up to a sci-fi story, and then this crappy blow-off of a cheesy horror story. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think... It, it's trying to do both, and it also is, like, there's a lot of humor in there, which I like, but it sort of works against the story, and it's kind of long, and there's all sorts of problems that make it not that cool to me. Oh. What do you guys think? Julie, Julie, you're, you've got, you, you read it, so you must have liked it enough. Well, I read it, I adapted it. <laughs> you did an adaptation of it? Yes. Um, I've written an adaptation of it. We've performed it live, but we haven't actually. There's there's a live recording of us performing it at Crypticon last year, but we haven't done a full mastered pretty version yet. Okay. And what, what, how did you make changes to it? In Should we talk about the story itself first? Uh, sure, if you want. Well, well, it's easier to explain what I changed when if we if the listeners are quite aware of what right. it is. Well, we're going to put the audio up front, so everybody's going to have heard the story. Ah, okay. I always forget about that. I'm sorry. It's okay. You're so spoiled. <laughs> but John, you were going to say something. Yeah, gonna... I have to interject. I liked yeah. the story a lot. Granted, bad ending, but at the same point in time, and I've said this to friends before, there are a lot of stories with bad endings, but as long as the journey there was interesting, I don't mind it. Also, I don't want it to be bad, because if it's bad, then August Derleth is right about it. Yeah, and you, nobody <laughs> wants August Derleth to be right about anything. He said it was... Well, moment, my quote here. Derleth didn't say it was unsaleable. In fact, he thought it would sell. He said it was a poor story, which is entirely different and much more lamentable. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think Lovecraft liked it either. Your reaction to my poor dreams in the witch house is in kind about what I expected, although I hardly thought the miserable mess was quite as bad as you found it. The whole incident shows me that my fiction days are probably over. Which is depressing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so n not not a lot of love coming from that. What about Mirko? What do you think? Uh, I'm 
I have to disagree. It's a great story. I like the story. Uh, of course, many critics said that it was poor or um, Stephen Mary Conda said Lovecraft's magnificent failure. And um, I have to I have to be on the side with Kenneth Hyde and and uh, I guess it was Fritz Leiber who loved the story and he said it's great and um, it is and I hope that we can discuss this out. Oh yeah, let's let's, <laughs> let's, let's hear it. the reason why it's great because uh, it has a lot of the stuff that I like, but yeah. I, it somehow doesn't all gel to me in the same way that it uh, and it might be the way it's told, you know. This is not a guy telling about what happened to him, and it's not someone telling about what happened to his friend. It's sort of a general description of what happened to one guy and his... Uh, an omniscient sort of, narrator. Yeah, and how how often does that happen for Lovecraft? It's sort of unusual, right? Yes. Um, If I uh, can start the ball rolling, I like the sci-fi portion of it. I find it fascinating. The, the, the opening section, and then when it suddenly turns into standard witch story number four, almost, it's like, eh. I mean, this is what, one of the things that I came up against when I was adapting it, was trying to make these two different halves of the story sort of gel, and also to fix that ending. Hmm. So uh, I I th- I think the somebody says that the story was inspired by a lecture that Lovecraft went to listen to about uh, phys- the physics of Einsteinian the size of the universe by William right. De Sitter, a fellow right. who apparently, along with Albert Einstein, uh, hypothesized the existence of dark matter. Oh, yes, very intellectual. That's where the dark man is made out of. Dark matter. Precisely. With cloven hooves. <laughs> See, that's the problem I have, is that I, I want it to go in one direction or want it to go in another direction, but I don't want it to go in both directions at the same time because it feels like it's it's trying to explain everything in the same way that string theory does. It you know? might have been a story that he he might have salvaged. I mean, if he'd have the chance to reread it. R- remember, it wasn't submitted to Weird Tales by him. Oddly right. enough, August Derleth sent it in. Without oh. his permission, in fact. Yeah, he's... Well, I, I guess we're we're uh, ben- benefiting from that evil that August Derleth is always doing. August Derleth deserves all the credit in the world for keeping Lovecraft's stories in print. Apart from that, much of his contribution to the mythos makes him the very first fanfic Mary Sue writer. That's true. <laughs> I'll tell you, I love Hypnos. I, I, I want to do a podcast about Hypnos. It's one of my favorite stories because it's nice and short. It, it does a lot of what's going on in here that's good. It does it a little more, um, other than concisely, it does it uh, with a much better ending. And there's no stuff about witches, uh, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not big into witches. Uh, I, I'm not big into magic. So the the stuff that is in Lovecraft, it's normally you know dark evil magic. It's really not dark evil magic. It's usually something else. Well, so uh, let me ask you this, guys: What does uh, being from beyond space need with a baby? You know, the guts of a baby? What's he gonna do with the guts of a baby? Oh, 
what does why why are people always sacrificing things to Cthulhu or Yog Sothoth or Naralathotep or whoever? I mean, well, I I think that those those are human beings that are maybe you know crazy <laughs> beings who've driven crazy who are trying to get on the good side of the alien beings. But in this case, we've got like isn't the dark man from beyond space? Well, isn't he just a avatar of Naralathotep? Yeah. Yep. But why, why is he looking? Why is he like cruising the streets with a with a a, a witch and uh, a, a man in his pajamas? That's just a Saturday night. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, isn't Nyarlathotep's a classic trickster? He just likes to screw with people. <laughs> I find this very intimidating. Uh, looking at a witch, at a black man with a red thing, and a dude in his pajama. <laughs> yeah, with no shoes on. And, and, no the, shoes. and the people who reported it, according to the newspaper, were admittedly intoxicated. Yeah. Drunken revelers. Well, and this was back in, well, I guess it was after Prohibition, but that just meant everybody cut loose. This was the thing I was uh, thinking about. Was it during Prohibition or really after Prohibition? I'm because... I think, well, I could look up when Prohibition ended, but this was one of his later stories, and, uh... I'm pretty sure it was, po- it's after Prohibition. Wasn't Prohibition, yeah. didn't Prohibition end in, um, 1928? I believe 29, so. 28, yeah. like that. Uh, no, actually in 1933, so this would have... Oh, oh really? Have been, they oh. might have been celebrating. Well, just proves I should have looked at Wikipedia. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> in, in any case, there's some drunk people... Looking at an old lady, a hag. Mm-hmm. Um, who, she's got a name that sounds like a man's name, Kaziah mm-hmm. Mason, right? Mm-hmm. She she somehow got tangled up into this. Uh, Walter Gilman uh, walking around his in his pajamas, uh, although he seems to have floated out of the room or tra- transferred through the wall somehow. Brown Jenkin running around the feet of the black man, and they, and they're all on the prowl for a baby. Like, that's quite a team to, to kidnap a baby. It's like a superhero squad. A supervillain <laughs> Very, very... It, it's, it's like, it, it is a comedy. It when is you, a hilarious you it objectively. picture. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, how many times in this story does he have to... He really has to go, consider consulting a nerve nerve doctor, a nerve specialist, sometime soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, that's like in in uh, Reanimator, where, you know, it's, it's just got to get a little bit fresher. It's it's like the repeated line that is like, this guy is really not following. <laughs> He's not seeing the, the big picture here. But, One thing I want to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, he also does how to spend travel in his pajama all the time. And this reminds me of Douglas Adams, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, I was I was uh, thinking that he's wearing a towel too. That would be cool. Well, you know, um, in some ways, you know, Lovecraft's initial projection that space is really, really big, really, 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 really big, and everything in it is really big and wants to eat you, oh. seems to me to be a direct precursor to the, um, you know, to the uh, high, uh, total perspective vortex. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Also of Douglas Adams. <laughs> it's it's 
uh, it's just that that is explicitly gone, going for the humor bent of it, right? Oh yeah. Whereas this is it, it's kind of be it's trying to be kind of creepy, and I I think it is just the way it's told because I, I don't think Minecraft's deliberately trying to be funny most of the time, except for possibly a slight absurdity. His Humor is odd and far between, and the only deliberate joke that I can really put my hands on is in Pikmin's model. So, well, but he's like got he's got like little you know oh, I got to get rid of those rats in the walls sort of thing in in here, and mm-hmm. the fact the fact that he keeps repeating this like the guy is you know uh, our our main character. Walter Gilman is incredibly blind to, you know, the danger he's in and, and, but he puts himself in that situation in, like, he seeks it out uh-huh. in, in the, in the Masters of Horror adaptation. He's just looking for a room to rent. He's not like, he's not like our regular Lovecraftian characters who are putting themselves into that tomb. He, he's accidentally just looking for a cheap place to live. No, right? some of Lovecraft's heroes are accidentally in, in the places they are, but, yeah. but I mean, in some ways, the obliviousness that Walter shows is very similar to the narrator in Whisper in Darkness. Mm. Um, I mean, because he's, I mean, the narrator in Whisper in Darkness is like, well, I'm an educated man, and this guy's obviously full of crap. You're like, dude, you have well, no we idea. Know he's in a story, though. In that case, we know he's in a story. Yep. Whereas the, this guy, he's like, he can't sleep. He's, he's being chewed on. You know, like the, there's rats running around his apartment. Well, the, um, the other. If any of those things started happening to you, you'd say, I'm out of here, right? Well, but that's another classic MacGuffin that Lovecraft uses for a number of his characters. Like in, um, again, in Whisper in Darkness, Akeley can't, I mean, actually, ex- talks about the fact that he can't bring himself to leave. And um, in Color Out of Space, the whole family can't leave, even though they've been invited to leave by friends. I mean, it's just a thing where you, you find this incredible inability to leave the danger. I always find it kind of annoying. Maybe Maybe it's, you know, if it was like a family thing, you know, I don't know anything else, sort of thing. Yeah, this is my home. Well, admit, but yeah, Akeley and 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 the uh, and the family in Colorado Space both have a, a homesteading concept involved, yeah. as opposed to running a room. I mean, I did throw in something when I adapted it to explain some of that, but you know, because uh, if you, you you guys all seen the Masters of Horror uh, movie adaptation, the mm-hmm. hour long version, a while ago, yeah. So, um, in that one, he's, he's a student just like he is at the university. They, they chuck out a lot of the ancillary, um, uh, roommates or fellow boarders in the house. Uh, they compress them down. They put the woman in, with the baby in the house, right? Down the hall. Um, so they compress the story down and it makes it a little bit, you know, uh, it cuts out, uh, I would say, all of the com- comedic aspects. Uh, at least almost all of them, um, and has sort of the action take place over a shorter amount of time. I think, I think the story we've got, uh, the story version has, it's like a year or something. It's a whole semester at least. Mm-hmm. 
and he's failing his classes. I mean, this guy is in terrible condition. The reason he's in in the in the movie, they, the way they do it, he he's got uh, he's poor. Oh. Um, he has to grade papers to 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 pay the rent, and he's a uh, grad student, so he's not he's just not doing well. And he's there, and he he feels sympathy for the the girl next door who's in there, all that stuff. So. In there, it's it's played straight, and it seems pretty, um, pretty, pretty scary. But also, I think it cuts out everything really with regard to space. Oh. You know, there's nothing about the stars. It's all about uh, other dimensions or something like that. And then that's to explain uh, the witch. And I don't think there is a black man in there at all. No, no if I remember correctly, I really don't think it's included. It's got Brown Jenkins. It's got Keziah Mason, if 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 she even has a name, but it doesn't have the the devil or whatever whatever the black man's supposed to be. Oh. Not Nyarlo, Nyarlo. There we go. One of those debatable thing, debatable pronunciations, but I think you did a pretty good job in oh, the yeah. audio. Yeah. I I yeah I I've chosen the one I like, even though it. Contradicts the song I like, but oh well. <laughs> so there's a great song called Narlahotep by uh, Darkest of the Hillside Thickets, and it's uh, they sung it in what a, they claim is, uh, and, and as far as I know, they actually got a translator and stuff to give them the pronunciations of um, ancient Egyptian. So it's pretty hilarious. They sing it in ancient Egyptian. It's a great song. Okay. <laughs> it's from the album. It's from the album, the, the uh, Shadow Out of Tim. Okay. <laughs> is Tim one of the? Uh, no, no. The Shadow Out of Tim is a, a total concept album based on the Shadow of Time, and it's awesome. Okay. Sorry, I just really love this the album. You're all right. So I, I need more defense on this because I, I obviously yeah. I'm 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 the only one who is is hating on this story. As much as I am, I, there are parts I like about it, but as a whole, I just don't think it, it's, it, it, I mean, it's still worth reading, but I think, you know, I, I haven't read everything by Lovecraft, but it, this is ranking near the bottom for me. Well, um, I, I hate to monopolize, um, well, but one of the things that I, I liked about the science fiction aspect of it, and I, I am, I really do split it right down the middle between the science fiction story and the horror story, is that that part of it, while he's finding it scary, he's finding it fascinating, and that's mm-hmm. part of why he stays. Because that's kind of what he got into it for. He's into it for the the math, the science, the weird aspect, and therefore this interplanetary or interdimensional travel is kind of kick-ass. You know, and so... That's one reason he's letting himself get drawn in, and he's losing losing a good sleep or whatever, is yeah. because this is is interesting. There's scary parts too, but you know, any kind of exploration has scary parts. Here, there be dragons, right? Yeah. And um and and all of the all of the best story anecdotal evidence that he comes up with comes from this section. The sunburn, the um, pick the uh, metal statue of the elder thing that he breaks. blown out eardrums. Yeah, the well, the that comes from the ending of it, but it is still that's really still from the sci-fi part of the story. Yeah, it, it makes me think like he's he's had um, been exposed to space or something. But he went too close to Azatoth at the center of the universe. Yeah, it's it, it, there's lots of cool stuff in there, but the the distancing 
Um, you guys, uh, John and Mirko, you didn't find this, this third person omniscient, but not very omniscient narration. It, it's sort of, you know what, it's, it, it's sort of told like from some dude who's standing on the corner saying, oh yeah, that house? Let me tell you a story. Because he doesn't have, he, he knows tons about what's going on, but he, he says, some people say this, some people say this. I, you know, the omniscient narrator is, is probably, I think, the main problem for me. What do you say? I kind of liked it. It, it was an, it's an, an unusual angle to take the story from, and not the sort of thing Lovecraft really, I think, ever did. Uh, am, I, am I wrong about that? Every time I think, of, think about the situation, I go, well, maybe in... No, 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 that was definitely different situation. I, I, I liked the angle that the story went. I liked the strangeness of the story. I liked the weird obsession that, like, the, the sort of Pythagorean view that everything was made of numbers, and if you knew the proper numbers, you could do practically anything. Pythagoras had, had a view, not Pythagoras himself, his later disciples, had a view that everything was made out of numbers, and if you really understood the nature of the, uh, the, the nature of mathematics, you would understand Everything about the universe, the, the whole concept of the music of the spheres, they thought that everything was constantly inter interconnected, and that the thing that connected it was mathematics, the one pure dis discipline. All other forms of philo philosophy were just hypothetical. You only thought you were right, but only with math, only with two plus two, that always makes four. Only Except with mathematics. Twelve. No, sorry. I, un I understand that's something <laughs> but in their in their day mathematics were the were the one bedrock that you could that you could put everything on i think that the the physician galen was uh, had had an anecdote about being stricken with with the belief that that medicine would ne would never work out the way it was supposed to that everything was so hypothetical that everything was a guess and he chased away his he chased away all, all of his fears ab about his discipline by ram ram rambling off off ser series of number tables and going okay numbers I can depend upon those I look at this story and it, it, it seems it, it seems to be in, in a similar event I know dissider and such but I think I think he might have been a Look, looking at, at the universes, I don't really think Keziah Mason is dead at any point in time in the story, really. Oh, no. Really, not until the end. She's, for one thing, I love Keziah Mason, if only because, fine, you never get anything from her perspective, but she's, aside from Asenath Waite, which is a cheat, she's Lovecraft's major female antagonist. She's bottomlessly powerful it sometimes seems and yet also fragile she's fascinating to me and the fact that once he gets involved in this the fact that he can't just leave i mean not everyone could just pack up and leave the amity house like the lutzes did <laughs> which is of course garbage but anyway anyway i genuinely believe that that sometimes people are in these situations and they're just Maybe he's there because somehow his soul is caught up in the area now. Maybe he simply can't leave because he's enmeshed, entranced in, 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 
in, in the nature of the universe right there, right where he is. Maybe she somehow has power over him right from, right from the start. It's something that comes back to me every time I, I read the story. I think that he's the most tragic of Lovecraft's protagonists because he seems doomed from the start. And it's depressing and sad. And while I'll grant it, the whole thing where, oh, his heart was eaten out by a man rat. That yeah. does sort of come at you from like, oh, come on, really? And particularly when you watch the uh, the movie. it Why is it that nobody can envision Brown Jenkins as something that's frightening? The creature in the movie looked a lot like Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> yeah. <it's pretty> <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> no, honestly, it even has those those buck teeth. It's that I kept expecting, welcome to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Pizza time theater. Actually, Brown Jenkins is one. Brown Jenkins is one of the things that I have seen sculpted the most, and some of them are incredibly creepy. I know. Why couldn't they do that with the the one time it was going to be made to a movie? Because let's not assume there are a dozen different different versions of this in the in the pipeline in our lives. Just a minute, my version. But he's Brown Jenkins. See, uh, it makes no sense to me that this this character is even in the. The story. Uh, it, He's it, a witch's familiar. I know that, but what is a Brown Jenkin? I mean, uh, I don't oh, know what a Jenkin is. Brown Jenkin is simply a name. Witches, right. witches familiars had a lot of goofy names in the old records, and that's totally in keeping with the kind of names that they were given. Um, in, in the old records of the witch trials, witches familiars always had some weird name like that, and there were always an animal, but with some characteristics that made them suspect. I think I think I remember uh, one of those Red Dwarf or something like that where they they were trying to convince somebody that she was oh maybe it was Black Adder and she said look yeah. she's a witch and they, they kept coming up with really terrible The cat, yes. <laughs> what is that you fed your poodle? It's milk! Bloody milk! Bloody milk! Yes. yes. And, and the names were always like yeah very ridiculous kind of name. And what is your kitty's name? Uh, Bubbles, exactly. Bellsy Bubbles! Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there were some, there were some really, really bizarre ones. But yeah. No, and, and there were, there was a lot of really weird, I mean, there was a lot of way goofy stuff involving the witch trials. That I mean, looking on it from a modern viewpoint was way goofy. One of the things that people were accused of, that witches were accused of constantly in the witch trials, was of making a man's genitals vanish. <laughs> uh, mind you, I think that still happens today, right? That's what all the witch witchcraft in Africa is. A, is oh yeah, a I mean, and it's like, can't you just like take his pants off and check? No, we just have to take his word for it. Stole my penis. The the witch stole my penis. I think we just call it whipped nowadays. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was, what was that make, why does that make me think of Python again? Ah, uh, yes, the whole thing. How do you know she's a witch? She's turned me into a newt. Yes, I I got better. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a mob mentality thing as much as anything else, and it's I mean you know there was a lot of just creepy stuff that went that goes with the uh, the idea of we need a scapegoat or often I want her property. And that was just as you know common with 
old women with no family to stick up for him. Hmm, I like that house. You know, oh, she's a witch. You know, get rid of her. Yay, now I can have her house. That 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 works with all times, not so much different sexes. I remember reading about the during the uh, during the period of Caligula, there was all, people joked that there was a pro- profession called the accusers oh. who made a living by oh God, that look at that. My neighbor has such a nice a, a nice area there. I'd like to add that onto mine. I guess I'll accuse them, and they would be rewarded for having turned in that horrible criminal by receiving their property. That's called proscription, actually. That, that The richest man in Rome got it. most of his money that way. Crassus. Crassus, yeah. See, that's why you never want to have anything too exciting on display. That's right. <laughs> so who, who wants this wonderful house, this witch house? It's, uh, it's got a bunch of Pol- uh, Polish landlord, a bunch of, it sounds like Polish... Uh, tenants. Tenants. Um, it's got... Uh, what was what, the significance of the the guy downstairs in the movie? He's depicted as a uh, an old man who had previous experience with the uh, with Kaziah uh, Mason. In, in the book, he's just a drunken loom mender. Yeah, a loom mender. I was thinking, loom mending. Does that have anything to do with with? Uh, no, uh, I couldn't find any significance to it apart from uh, it's the looming <laughs> evil. The looming evil. That's, that's not good. What, what are you gonna say, Mirko? So you, you're talking about this guy who's whining prayers all night. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he's praying so, all night. Yeah, he's he's probably the um, the counterpart to the traditional part of the story. You get the witch trials and the witches, so you have to have one who is praying with a cross, right? And yeah. um, he he delivers another cross by this. Uh, uh, um, by this priest to Gilman, right? And the the interesting thing about the cross is that it's not the symbol that is uh, freaking out Keziah, that he he really chokes her with the with the uh, with the chain. So you here is displayed the the power of material against um, traditional believing in witches. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> she does balk some at the symbol, and I think it just gives him the opening he needs to choke her. To choke her, right. Yeah. So the, uh, the cross has to be delivered somehow. And why not with a man who, who is praying uh, all night? So this is the best, the, the best method to put in the cross and to, to have an inside uh, joke that Lovecraft was an atheist, and he, he displaced this, this, this cross to be a weapon, but not a weapon of, of, of faith or belief, but to be a literary weapon with the chain he's choking with. Do <laughs> you understand no, that? Oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. I, I could explain it better in German, so I... Uh, oh, no, <laughs> I just didn't want to interrupt while you... I want to make sure, because I'm so noisy. <laughs> I... That's... No, the, the, the thing is that I... I uh, there are some uh, people living in the house... But this man is, is always constantly uh, um, described as, as whining prayers and drunk and, and being very uh, a very normal, normal guy, regular guy uh, who goes to church and believes and who is uh, afraid of the, the uh, Walpurgis night coming on. So he is he's the counterpart to Keziah, to the, the witch belief. And the third counterpart is 
the quantum physics that Lovecraft is, Lovecraft is talking about. He's he's doing something new. He's mixing it up. He tries to to have an explanation why certain things are done in in the witch cult, and his explanation is well, they are actually doing quantum physics and hyperspace travel, and to to have this basis, he he uses traditional witch cult beliefs. And then he, uh, he, he tears the flesh apart. So you have the skeleton, and the skeleton is quantum physics. Let's talk about Walpurgis Night, because um, the, I'd not heard of it before uh, this story. Obviously, I, I'm fairly familiar with Halloween. I, lo- I like Halloween. It's a fun fun. Uh, activity sort of thing. Um, I, I, I've researched Halloween quite a bit, but I hadn't heard of Walpurgis Night before this, and uh, apparently it's like a springtime version of Halloween, sort of. Basically. Uh, really? basically. Uh, you, uh, only person who's experienced it is Mirko, is that correct? Not really. Um, Walpurgis Night is, in whole Europe, it's very familiar, and but we don't actually have the the, the sense of tradition anymore. Some people who believe in witches and in the wicker cult and all like that, they still have uh, fires and uh, faith around that, around that time of the year. But Walpurgis um, Night was evil. Was of course a Sabbath, uh, one of the one of the uh, great Sabbaths, the great witches' Sabbaths. And now we are actually having a May Day party every uh, every end of April where the people are dancing into May into the uh, the, the the funny um, month of the year oh yeah right 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 I was missing the word and um, still in the eastern part of Europe there are traditions that the people are afraid of witches and afraid of the influence of Satan and and the witch cult but um, um, the Brocken, we talked about that. The Brocken is right. Uh, yeah, the Brocken is a mountain top. Is a mountain top, right? And um, there is a, a, a weather station on there, and still people like pagan believers are moving there to uh, at Walpurgis Night to have their rituals done there. This is there, of course, no no evil rituals, but uh, still they are <laughs> there. They are also, uh, some policemen are hanging around there. I guess in rural parts of, of Germany, it's popular youth culture to play pranks such as tampering with neighbors' gardens and uh, stuff like that. They they actually um, having huge trees and with with uh, ribbons, colored ribbons, and uh-huh. put them in front of the house of the ones they they love or the ones they are going to to marry. And um, my wife told me that in the southern part of Germany, they have Huge, my bäume, my may trees build up very huge things about ten to twenty meters, and every village has to protect its my tree because um, they have to. I, I guess they have to. They have to protect them uh, a week or so, and sometimes they are stolen. And one village steals <laughs> the may tree of the other village, and they have to offer them beer for a year. I guess <laughs> that's so basically like- the. Sounds like yep. football homecoming at rival high schools. <laughs> it does sound like you're stealing yeah. the other team's mascot. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. 
kind of, kind of. And um, so I, you, I figured you like you had like a pitchfork in your garage. Yet. And so <laughs> it's the end of the month coming. I gotta polish this up. <laughs> yeah, right. Get the torches out. Go find me some witches. Climb up um, Mount Brocken and. But no, it's it's more like it's 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 more like Halloween then. It's a bit like Halloween, yes, right. But but um, they they um they have parties. Actually, it's all about partying. <laughs> That's the rest of the tradition here. So, it, how many how many Americans who live in Massachusetts would would be aware of? I guess the, because it's a house full of Polish immigrants. Is that why they? They would be aware of this this sort of that, that obscure. Might be one reason he he filled it with people like that. I mean, because I don't think I, I mean you know let's not get on to his racism, but I mean immigrants of any kind. He didn't seem to have anything against the poles, except that he had them be you know excessively religious. Yeah. Yeah. But uh the other thing that's missing from the movie version, there's a there's a non pole in there too, isn't there? Isn't there a one resident of the house who's a fellow like student, Edward, fellow student Edward um Elwood. Uh, Elwood. 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 The third right. blues the third blues brother. Yes. <laughs> Franco, <laughs> I believe. No, that's right. Um so traditionally, you know, if you're doing a, a regular Lovecraft story, there's there's two guys, and one of them is is the crazier one, and the other one's the more sheepish but follower one. Um, if we were to analyze the story this way, uh, wouldn't L would be the more sheepish guy? Well, it's not always more sheepish. And thing on the doorstep, the narrator character isn't is is the non sheepish one. Okay. You know, he's he's the friend, but he's the you know he's the normal one. Uh, isn't uh, am am I wrong in saying that some people think that the thing on the doorstep is one of the least uh, working Lovecraft stories like this one? And I think this is sort of I'd, more reviled. I've not read the thing on the doorstep. Oh, once again, thing, I like the thing on the doorstep. The <laughs> thing on the doorstep is actually one of the most internally logical, without any reference to the mythos stories, and, and yet still connects to the mythos in logical ways as a story of itself. If it appeared on like Tales from the Crypt, you you could totally buy it. Okay. I mean, it has that kind of internal logic, right from A to B to Z. You know, um, maybe we can talk about that another time. I've adopted that one also. Okay. <laughs> I um I, I oh sorry I do want to interject here because this is yep. something that it ha- that it popped up earlier. The concept of Lovecraft's racism. This is a this is a strange sort of thing that. I notice, and sometimes I think other people don't notice. Yes, the you have the the uh, the neighborhood of crazy Italians, and they're all Catholic in in um, the 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 what the Father heck of was the that? dark. Yes, exactly. And then you have the poles here, and it's like, oh goodness gracious, there are these people. But in both situations, those people are in their own way right. It's not mm-hmm. like the poles are there and they're behind it. The, Cath- the 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 Italians are there and they're empowering it in a strange way. The 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 central character rejects well their beliefs and their natures and the, generally also in this situation their religions. And yet it, it, yet this isn't this isn't presented as their religion is correct. It's just that in these situations they might have in the Haunter of the Dark. It's the they know to present to present light and that keeps the creature at bay. In 
a variety of situations in in in, in Lovecraft stories. It seems like the character, the, the people who either the religious people or the ethnic people in his perspective turn out to be right or at least close closer to be to being correct in the by the end of the story it's it's an interesting thing i think it might have been unconscious though it's it's a sort of um they don't know why they're right it's it's a it's they're superstitious. They're, they're superstitious and primitive and whatever caused the superstition you know, because whether they really know to present light or whether they just are going there to do a vigil and they're bringing all their candles, because that's what Catholics do. And it happens to be that the light stops it, not the prayers and the and the vigil. And they don't realize that what part of it's doing it. I mean, if, you know, if you pray over somebody and put willow bark on their, on their injuries, they that's feel better, you know, but you don't know what part Love, of it's doing. Lovecraft it. seems to have his his characters all not have prejudices that we should have, right? So when you see, like, uh, a creepy house with, you know, rats crawling out of the walls and stuff like that, wouldn't you say, you know what, I'm not going to live here, right? You'd say, that that's not cool. Or somebody sends you, like, something horrible in the mail. Everybody <laughs> has I mean, their I'm not going to go up there. Yeah, Every, I'm not going to go there. Everybody has their differences. To some people, that's very attractive. You could you could say at the same point in time, most people would look at Mount Everest and say, I'm not going to go up there. But that's a right. lot of people do. In a way, it might and be a lot of mentality. Die up there. Exactly. Because cause I am Masons up there waiting for them. Well, and, and, you know, every, I mean, if you look at every scientist, every person is like, ooh, I'm not going to touch that slimy thing. Okay, you're not going to discover what I can discover about that. I mean, everybody's got to push into some area they don't, that's kind of icky. And and his characters are all those curious, you know, ooh, want to discover, want to find out, you know. I don't well, know. They I, don't have a lot they, of self-preservation. I, no, that's right. They, they're all going to kill themselves. I, it's it's not like uh, it's it's not like oh, this is really uh, you know interesting insect. It's it's more like um, yeah, this this thing's killed lots of people, and uh, and there's all sorts of horrible rumors about it. And yeah, maybe I'll I'll just go live there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I think you shouldn't <clears throat> do that. But it's so obvious to us, like in the fact that he he has to go see a nerve specialist. He's failing his 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 grades. He he can't sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I have trouble sleeping, I change whatever it was that was doing that because I need I need my sleep. Think of it more. Well, see, okay. One thing I did with my adaptation of it, even though I didn't harp on this particular aspect of it, I moved it into the 1960s, partly just for easier character development partly because um it's it's you know I could have a little bit more technology but not enough to throw the story out of whack and the 60s of course gave me a little bit more access to sci-fi authors so that the characters could have a discussion about some of the stuff and but at the same time um you know I kind of equated his staying there to an addiction mm and and the 60s of course was the drug experiment era and and all the psychedelic stuff and we only reference it briefly but you know that the idea that he's there because he can't leave because he's hooked on these dreams mm. he seems to be he acts that way i mean and an addiction can totally ruin your you know academic career and your 
you know, your life and your sleep and all those things. And at the same time, no matter how much you know intellectually that it's a bad idea, you keep going back. Makes sense. I don't speak from personal experience, but, you know. (laughs) You don't have to. Thrill seekers and such. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh <laughs> which I, I, I don't, I don't the weird thing that from an intellectual perspective, there's a lot that relates this character to people who refuse to wear a helmet while skateboarding. <laughs> well, the other reason I moved it to the sixties was I wanted to also include a character who was, uh, claimed who was, uh, outspokenly Wiccan and could speak to the, I mean, cause the sixties was when, certain amount of alternative religions were also popping up as as being acceptable in public and and that way I could offer alternative views and be going no what you're reading about is not anything to do with actual witch trials and things whatever she was into is not you know standard dude and we could have a little debate about that I, you know, what I would think would be, uh, an interesting adaptation, and I'm not a person who would know, but maybe you guys do, is, uh, I think this would make a, a better, you know, game module than anything else. Um, I, I was thinking like the HP Lovecraft game, what's it called? The Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu, yes. Right. So if there's a module for that, I, I just think like when I first discovered 20-sided dies, I thought this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's like it, it combines that stupid regular square uh, cubicle die, but with the numbers and stuff, with uh, five times as much power, right? And you and then you could get the ten-sided die, and you can get two ten-sided dies, and and you can do all sorts of th- and those weird angles on those dice. Uh-huh. I mean, they're not that weird, really. They're just pretty normal. But when you're a kid and you're not seeing a, a die, you didn't know that the or a, a four-sided die. When I when I first I was like looking at this four-sided, die, it has four sides. That's so cool. Um, I, I thought s- it was a pyramid at first, right? <laughs> I have I have a scar on my foot from stepping on a four-sided die. Ouch! Ouch! That must have been a hard step. <laughs> the existence this, of those. These, these were the yellow pointy ones from the original D and D box, and oh boy, those things were sharp. That later on they started lopping off the corners. Kind of like Doritos, which I, I, which. I, were originally sharp as heck on the edges, and I used to cut the inside of my mouth all the time. Oh. <laughs> I think of them as four-sided die are basically used for caltrops. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's another uh, Dungeons & Dragons style reference. Well, it's a midi- referenced, you know, medieval warfare, too, yeah. Yeah, but people don't learn it because they were doing medieval war- warfare. They learn it because they were reading the monster manual or the the equipment guide or something like that, right? See, those are some of the skills you gain being a gamer. You know, you learn how to read I, a map. You learn how prep? to read a blueprint. You learn how to draw learn, maps. You learn how to pronounce the word grimoire. You learn math. <laughs> I don't know if you knew, learn how to pronounce the word, but you certainly read the word. Well, beforehand, you say grimory or grimory or some such of that nature. Some of us still say it that way. Yes, I, I think grimoire. I don't go all the way to the wall. <laughs> Tisk. Uh, so, I was thinking this it, this would make a, a good style game of that kind, because it seems like 
you know, the, 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 the numbers, the, the angles, uh, and, and the sort of jumble of, <laughs> of things that are happening make it very open-ended, you know, the way you um, could I'm gonna... walk around the town in your pajamas all night or, you know, uh, uh, well, the gather problem, up a crew. The, the, the problem with it is, that it's it's a solitary story. It's happening to one person. It's not like your whole group can go into the dreams. So either the GM spends all his time with one person going through all these dream sequences, or that's happening off screen to the NPC that everybody else just sees by day and just is like, what the hell's wrong with you? I don't know. I didn't sleep well. <laughs> and then there's really not a lot. It, it'd have to be massively reworked to be a potential game. Scene. I do believe. I do believe Elwood has uh, somebody sleeping on his couch, right? Elwood um, or Elwood, vice versa. No, Elwood does talk um, Gilman into oh. coming down and sleeping on his couch for a short while, and then then they find him again and show up in that room to come and drag him off again. Yeah, so there's all sorts of uh, problems with, you know, real time, you know, this guy's doing his dream and that guy's doing, I, I just, I, I, I'm trying to be charitable to this story and I think it, there's a lot of fun elements, but to me it doesn't, it's not like a cohesive awesome. No. Like I, I, I read <clears throat> Hypnos and I say that is a cohesive awesome. It has the, the star stuff. It has a uh, wacko drug people living in, in uh, London, very 60s uh, <laughs> thing, then going to parties. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, this one has, you know, a student who's failing out of school and and uh, Polish Polish people who who uh, like hanging out with crucifixes. But there's not a lot of um, driving awesome. And the ending, I- I'm not satisfied. What do you guys think of this ending? Did you change the ending? Oh yeah. Well, the, the- I condensed the ending because the ending has three endings and they take yeah. place over a long period of time. It's like, and here's the ending. He survives. And here's the ending. He gets, the thing pops out of him and then a he day gets later. Eaten. Like a day later. Oh, and then, you know, four or five years later when the roof caves in, they discover all the other stuff up in the secret room in the attic. Woo! Right. <laughs> long after anybody gives that. a crap. So yeah, yeah, I condensed all the endings. Oh, there's one other element that actually we haven't been bringing up which I also did totally leave out of my version because I thought it was completely unnecessary, is his wanderings trying to follow stars. Mm. And that's also in Hypnos, uh, not in Hypnos, it's in Hypnos as well, but it's in that um, one we've done a podcast sleep on. Sleep is actually oh, okay. one of the ones that I would connect to the star connection. But yeah, it's like after he goes to one of these planets, then all day long he's drawn to sort of stare at the spot on the floor, which he later realizes is if he was looking in a straight line from his eyes to that planet (laughs) or that star system or whatever, he was trying to follow it. And, you know, it happened to be on the other side of the earth at the time. So he's staring at the floor all day. I yeah that I could not manage to work back into the story with any kind of logic. It just drove me nuts. I just, it, um, it's also in Polaris is what I was going to say. You uh, know the yeah the, the this obsession with evil stars, um, with with plungings into uh, I don't know through the ether and stuff uh, that dream astral projection stuff. It, it's very interesting. Uh, Beyond the Walls of Sleep is, is the one where the the one 
Redneck Hick is is a dream, is a star trapped in a human body and stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The thing that he is uh, attracted to the star. Um, I found an essay about Lovecraft's uh, astronomical um, mentions in his stories, uh-huh. and um, this is um, the some somewhere between um, what was the star uh, Hydra and Argonavis, right? And right. if he looks at this. Um, this this planet he was onto somewhere between the stars, and if you follow the uh, um, the movement of the stars, he he re- is really correct in um, the the describing. When Gilman looks at it, he looks through the floor, uh, and um, moving the moving of the planet and the moving of the stars is very correct described by Lovecraft. He puts very great effort in it to um, to Anything that's astronomical and in his stories, you can you can really prove it in if you're looking at star uh, star books or or uh, catalogs. He uh, is always correct with this. I, there are several um, examples, like in the festival. Um, if you if you look at this description when uh, the protagonist looks at the stars, you can really figure out that it's correct. Pardon me, I was just going to say that. It's it's something that really I mean for that amount of work he put into it, it it it's so it, it feels so you know like tacked onto the story in some ways. It would be so much better if he'd done a story with that element because it's a cool element, but it it doesn't connect well. I mean, yes. it's it it it's one of many that doesn't connect into the story here. They they completely leave it out of the movie version. There's no, no mention of stars at all. It's all it's alternate dimensions. It's not the sort of thing that could really be depicted that way. It's the sort of thing I could picture uh two people um you, it could be introduced in the story if there were two central people and one fellow is looking over the other going, "What are you staring at?" as he stares at the ground and yeah. he explains it with that a sing song like yeah. like Right there, I was there the other night. You see, that's cool. Yeah, that's and this is it's like oh wow. Well, then the person well, can think oh Christ, what the what are you on? You know. Yeah, but it's, it's like really so, the, so sad that he doesn't doesn't do it like yeah. Julie said. That's that's so disappointing. Yeah, because that could have been it's a great element. It's it's an interesting idea, but it just doesn't belong in this story. Because, I mean, he just does that, and then he wanders around trying to follow it, and then he doesn't figure out what what it is he's doing for like another day. It's just this weird random plot thread, mm. and then he's like, "Oh, I get it. It was the star. Okay, yeah, you know." And you're like, "Ba ba ba." <laughs> it but, sounds weird, but it, it might just be an indicator as to Lovecraft's basic personality. He seems often like an untethered balloon bobbing about New England and wherever the heck he was able to get to, saving his pennies so he can just go to another town just to stare at a certain house. Mm. It, 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 in a way, it's, it just seems to be like part of his personality. There's a lot of puppy dog in Lovecraft. Which, <laughs> yeah. No, him himself, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, there's a lot of puppy dog in there. And it's 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 one of the things that makes him so sad, and yet in a way so sympathetic to me. The hmm. pokey little puppy, yes, the pokey little love Exactly. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but you know, I'm saving up all my money all year so I can go to to what, what were where were his obsessions? His obsessions were 
Charles, well, no, no, that was a local obsession. Charleston, North Carolina, and that city in Canada. Oh, not is it Vancouver? Montreal. Montreal. You're right. Sorry, sorry. I think I think I think it was Montreal. Those were his two most favorite places to be on the North American continent. If he could have been anywhere, he would have been in England. But if he couldn't be in England. He would have been in either of those two places. His diary occasionally makes mention of those being being his favorite locations. And there are no people there that he knows. He just walks around and looks at the old buildings and wishes that he was there when they were built. That is so... Uh. He was he was a, a historical building a file, whatever that is. Uh, an antiquarophile? No, that's, uh, anyway. But, um, yeah, the, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. I want to get John Feaster to talk about Bingo the Birthday Clown for a minute, because that sounds <laughs> funny. Oh, God. And according to John. Uh, yes. I see it in, in, in a weird way as a, as a, I see the sponsors in the, the various areas here. Star Crunch and such. I see, I see that as a love, as a Lovecraftian entity. I see it, in fact, as almost a, the whole setting almost set in a weird version of the Dreamlands with this thing eating the, the, eating these children who are not actually children in the real sense of, hi, I'm walking around and this is bone and flesh and such. I see it as going on in a dream and in a way when it happens, perhaps that child dies in its sleep or some, or some such. There, there's, that, that's, that series haunts me. And Thank I, you. I, I listen to it every, I listen to it every year. Just go through the whole, just spend, spend a whole day going through the whole thing. It's, it's such a, the description of the sponsor. Uh, I think it, I think it looked like, it looked like a, field of red jelly with bones floating in it. And it smelled kind of like ham. Exactly. Uh, it, it, yes. It's, oh wait, it smelled like old hot dogs. Right. Something like that. Hot dog water. I don't know. Oh my. That, that, that there was, that, I think that each of those shows had their own separate sponsor because they weren't all being advertised by Star Crunch. No, there, there was there was the there was the show with the with the superhero, who ultimately everyone in that show is consumed except for its <laughs> except for its villain, Tunis the uh, Tunis the Unconquered, Unstoppable, Unstoppable, who escapes his show and just seems seems to seems to separate himself from everything until he re until he reconnects with the the universe if you will the, the universe of the 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 the, the, tel the sort of television television studio that all of this is connected to i see it as a, the television studio as as b being something like the library of solano connecting to these other alternate universes each universe is dominated by its own separate entity it's it's such a strange series every so often i listen to it and i think oh god i i can't explain this to to a, to a person i have to tell them listen to it well i do have half a second season written but half my actors ran off to college and it was like yeah you know but 
I have other plans and things and other studios to introduce, but there is a second sponsor you meet in the first season. I don't know if you ever yes. noticed it. Yes, yes. The the it's in it's it's in the soap opera, which has reduced itself to having only three people. Uh, <laughs> and I think I have a vague image of of the the sponsor as being a. Be, being an empty room with a light in it, and the light itself is the sponsor, but the light's <laughs> directionless. Uh, no, she's well. Do you want a spoiler? Well, Stella's Stella's a sort of a mm, anthropomorphic supercomputer. I, I keep trying to think how would I explain this. I, I suppose as time has gone by, my head has has created its own. <laughs> images. I, uh, my image. My image of that be, that being was of a light that was always behind you, always. If, if basically, it, in a way, it would almost it almost make you think that the shadow being cast by it is actually it, not <laughs> the the light. But any anyway, it's just yeah. I, I become obsessed with that that that, that show. So uh, I I'd not heard of it other than you know it's one of Julie's shows it's and I, very it. it it's short, but it's but like the title of this five the ten title minutes long. Make me think of this. It makes me think of like, made me think of like uh, I don't know something like uh, the Simpsons. What's the clown on the Rusty Simpsons? Clown. He has a show. Presty has a show, right? I don't. I would want to watch his show, but what what you're talking about sounds a lot more cool. Well, and Bingo is actually not exactly present for most of the story. He's not the central character. That's the name of the show that the story begins in. And uh, and I'm guessing uh, that you uh, like the opening credits. Have you have you listened to the actual episodes or the conglomerated ones? Uh, I list. I have them. I have them tucked in on my computer. Just the separate five to ten minute episodes. Yeah, because the the opening credits change. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> it, how it starts off at, at, at the, in the first episodes. It's normal. That's right, kids. Get ready for Bingo the Birthday Clown. But you get fifteen, twenty episodes in, and it's that. that that's right, kids. Get ready for Bingo the Birthday Clown. Everything just changes. It sounds like it's melting. The, the yeah. sound, the sounds of children, children laughing and such. In the background start to become like the sounds of. Like a child with its hand caught in a rat trap, a high-pitched screaming, squealing. It's it's, it's a fascinatingly unpleasant series, but I like it so much. Well, if I ever do get season two and onward done, I hope it lives up to your expectations. Is that is that what happened, by the way, to the other fellow on Lovecraft Five? What do you mean? had a new Edward, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, the uh, Actually, the old Edward just flaked. I couldn't get in touch with him, and I had to get somebody reliable in there. Um, but but we could always just say Gary died. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a theory about, about Lovecraft 5. Is that set in... I think of it as set in, in uh, Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu universe with five archetypical... The, the the dilettante, the professor, the scholar, and such archetypical characters not actually getting involved in adventures, just commenting on other people's adventures that they've heard of. Well, I, I, I it's in it's just in my world. I mean, I'm, I haven't said it in any 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 of the game worlds, but um, 
it's originally it was just a way for me to do picture in the house because I like the story, but it doesn't hold well enough to do a whole episode by itself. And it was just a way to tell that story. And then everybody's like, oh, my God, you've got to bring these guys back. And I'm like, okay. What so other far, stories are hard to tell, you know? So far, my favorite, the one I have, I, I have probably li- listened to 15 times, not in a row, of course, just every so often going back to it, is, uh, is um, oh, God, it's the one with the monkey, you know, with the, oh, <laughs> the white apes. The Ar- Arthur German story. Yes, yes. yes. Now that sounds like a cool story. I've, I've been thinking about reading that one, and I found some uh, art from the original publication in Weird Tales that I want to get the chance on the site. Listen to listen to the Lovecraft Five episode. Huh? It's I don't hate the original story, but then again, I have a fondness for He of all things, mm. which was one of his stories. That any anyway, I, you have to try to separate them from their. You have to look at them from their time period and separate them from your background line, because if not, you're going like, "Oh, come on, you killed those Indians." But anyway, mm. anyway well, also it, though with with the, the um, facts concerning the uh, Arthur German, it's like the longest title he ever wrote. Um, mm-hmm. It 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 feels to me like he was starting off in a different direction with a completely different myth cycle, and then when he created the Cthulhu mythos, he just dumped it. Because it really does feel like he was starting a story there, and it connects to something in the picture in the house. Mm-hmm. In the pictures, because um, it mentions uh, something that looks partly like a, a, an ape or a human or something. And, and I'm like, he's starting a myth cycle here, and then he just lost it when he found something more fun to play with. Pigafetto didn't know what a Negro looked like, so in oh, his yeah. original in his original illustration, well, not him, the illustrations for the book, he they, they just looked like normal white people with ostrich plumes in their hair and, and such. <laughs> but I just mean the the connection, the way Lovecraft describes the picture, or has actually has the old man describe the picture, kind of connects up to the Arthur German story. And the the white apes in the middle of Africa somewhere, and and that seemed like it was going to turn into a you know a standard sort of bizarre darkest Africa myth story cycle, but I I thought it from what I read about it it sounds like uh, the H Rider Haggard she story but done <laughs> done, <laughs> uh, done like as a comedy. <laughs> it's, it's it's fairly dark, but I love the way I, I I I like I really do love the way I did it in the Lovecraft Five. It it was it was if you get the chance, listen to the Lovecraft Five version before you read the story. Honestly, listen to the Lovecraft Five version. It's it's superior. All right, we'll do it now, Julie. Uh, Julie, and I, I want to make sure Mirko's still alive. Mirko, are you still alive? Uh, I'm still alive. I'm making notes. I want to hear this uh, argument <laughs> right now. Uh, Julie has a new project she wants to plug. I hope that it will still be active when this podcast comes out. Oh. Yes, it's, I don't think it'll even be started yet, so you have plenty of time. First, no, the uh, Kickstarter is what you're... Oh, the Kickstarter, right. Um, before that, I want to mention there is one other adaptation of The Dreams in the Witch House that I would love to get linked in here for people, which is Brown Monkey's Dreams in the Witch House. Um, Brown Monkey is a friend of mine, and he does these basically like Rocky and Bullwinkle meets Lovecraft kind of cartoony things, and they're audio dramas. Audio drama cartoons, yeah. Well, it's Brown Monkey and his friend Sherman the Polar Bear, who is a professor at Arkham, a professor at Miskatonic, um, and... Uh, a polar bear? At a polar bear, yes. 
And and they've they've actually done a number of Lovecraft adaptations. But the Dreams in the Witch House one was particularly good. I can uh, make sure you have the URL for that handy. Yes, please. It's it's in my feed because I I feature their shows in my feed. Um, and and my live reading of it is also in my feed. If anybody wants to listen to what it sounds like, bare bones, and wish that I finished it, do it. Wait, can't wait till I do the real version. Um, Remember, Julie, that's going to be at the front of this podcast. Well, no, no, not my reading reading, but the, the this is the reading we did of my adaptation. Oh! The, the, oh, ca- the full cast live at a convention reading. So it's not like got lots of music or anything. <laughs> but it's, Oh, you mean uh, it, the audio drama yes, uh, of the live my, version? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you, you are going to do a... a Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just like Uncle George's House Party, which was my original script that we did the year before live, we're, it will be coming out this Halloween as a fully realized audio drama. It just, you know, we have to re-record everything and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, so the project I'm working on now, which is part of what's slowing me down in my 19 Nocturne projects, is I'm doing an audio novel. I'm, I'm not writing it. I'm producing it. It's a it's a book that's already been produced, and it has a slight Lovecraft tie-in. Um, in it, there is a gug. <laughs> the, the book is called The Hole Behind Midnight by Clinton J. Boomer. And uh, right now, Broken Eye Books, which is the publisher of it, um, is in the middle of a Kickstarter, which probably will end around Labor Day uh, in the U.S., which is the first weekend of... Uh, September to everybody else, and um, and they're they're putting together money to do a reprint of this book and to do like four other actual hard printings of books as opposed to the ebooks that they already have available, and um, and also expand some more of what they're working on there. And the books are pretty awesome, dark fantasy type stuff. Um, Hole Behind Midnight is a modern urban fantasy, which means magic and cussing, lots of cussing. And, um, <laughs> and, and, but it's got the, the, the neat thing that would probably appeal to Lovecraft fans about the hole behind midnight is the way Boomer mixes mythology. Cause he really, he takes some weird connections from all over the place, um, both in like, uh, similar mythological characters and creatures. And also simple etymology, you know, how the words connect up. And mm-hmm. he just really has either, either he has done massive amounts of research, which is what I assume, because from my past various massive amounts of research, I haven't caught him in anything wrong yet. But either he does massive amounts of research or he is extremely good at bullshitting. Mm. So either way, it's really fun to read the way he's connected up all these different mythologies. And this is the guy you, you met at a con and he put his yeah. book in your hand, right? Yeah, we were on panels at NorwestCon earlier this year. We were on a couple panels together on gaming, because he also writes for Pathfinder, which is the latest D&D incarnation. Mm-hmm. And um, and he, after the panel, he goes, that was fun. Here, have a copy of my book. And it's this giant brick. And I'm like, oh, God, now I have to read this. And it's independent press. Oh, you know, and I immediately threw it in the car, hoping I could lose it. And um, but then I was stuck, like in a, you know, at, at Jack in the Box, six cars behind somebody ordering for the entire baseball team. And I'm like, oh, okay, here's something to do while I'm waiting. And it turned out to be 
incredibly funny, incredibly obnoxious. There's something in there to offend everyone if you try hard enough. And it, and I, I almost immediately started hearing it in my actors' voices. So I get in touch with him. I'm just like, hey, that was good. You're a sick son of a bitch, aren't you? And he's like, thank you. And, <laughs> and so, and then I'm like, if you ever need voices for an audiobook, let me know. And he's like, I would love an audiobook. And I'm like, immediately, I go into this mode in my head going, don't volunteer, don't volunteer, don't volunteer, don't. But, you know, it's my own fault. I badgered his publisher and a contract and, you know, all this stuff. So it's actually a professional professional audio novel, but it will also be podcast. Um, and uh, I think you, did you do a reading of the first chapter? Uh, in one of my blogs, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought, I was surprised it was very good. I, I'm not a big fan of modern fiction, but it's first person, is it? It's first person from the viewpoint of Royden Poole, who is a, uh, it, there's so much, you can tell for one thing, I, I really appreciate the fact that, that Boomer is a gamer, I mean, and gamers will know what I'm talking about because the way he's constructed his magic and his world, it's really, really awesome and it makes sense and it, and it follows its own rules and, and you can actually understand it, kinda. Except there's always places where it goes, there's stuff that doesn't work that way and we don't know why. <laughs> you know, he leaves himself a lot of good little loopholes, but at the same time it's like, oh wow, that's awesome, that's awesome how that works. And so, yeah, the the hero is kind of called in by the police to talk to a suspect in a crime, and it just goes downhill from there after the suspect gets knifed to death by a giant evil naked clown and runs off into the... <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of goes from there. No, it, it, the first chapter, maybe it was the first two chapters, it was very... Uh, I was like, this is actually pretty good. I was thinking, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, because I, I, I try to find reasons not to read things. <laughs> I was, I was uh, very interested in that. And I think I, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your audio book of it, which is a full adaptation of the entire book, right? Well, it's not like a condensed thing. It's not condensed. It's also not changed. We're just doing the book as is, but we're doing it with multiple voices, with music and select sound effects. So, um, I mean, the, the sound effects are more for... You know, enhancement and punctuation than trying to make it sound like you're in the scene necessarily. So it's still slightly surreal and the music is a big part of it. And when is that come? When is the first uh, part come out? It's going to, I think it's going, we're still trying to hammer out a date because there's been a lot of conventions and the publisher and Boomer are both constantly going to conventions during convention season. So trying to set down a date has been a little tricky, but I believe I'm aiming for the weekend, uh, the second Sunday of September is when the first oh, okay. episode so will go out. About the time this is coming out. Yep. Not not too long after. Cool. Yeah. That'll be good. I want to ask if everybody's seen this uh, HPLHS movie version of The Whisper in Darkness. We mentioned this story earlier. Yes. Um, y'all seen the movie version? Um, yes. I've seen it. I fear I have not, though I oh. like the idea. I just... I literally have not had the chance to do so. Uh, I, I'd have to. I'm not the sort of person who'd, who'd get stuff off the internet. I'd have to buy a copy so I could well, have. You, it. Can, you can buy it on Amazon. I, I know that, but it's every time I'm there on Amazon, I, something else pops up. I'm usually there looking for something <laughs> specific. 
Right. I, I saw it in the theater at one of the um, first showings oh. in Seattle. Yeah, going to every con. con right? No, no, this was actually a midnight showing at the Egyptian, which um, actually just finally closed down. Its seats are about 75 years old, I think. So going to the Egyptian just means that you know that That'd you're... That would be cool to see it in a theater. It was. It was very cool. And the uh, writers, a uh, couple of the people were there, writers or directors... Yeah, it was midnight. I don't remember who all was there. But um, it was really good, and I like some of the changes they made. And I know, you know, because yeah, their Call of Cthulhu was presented in a 1920s silent film style, mm-hmm. which was extremely effective. And this is done more in the sort of 40s, 50s sci-fi movie style. Mm. And, and, and when they're aiming for a very distinct style to it like that, and it works very well. Uh, Marco, did you say you'd seen it? I didn't hear you. I didn't see it yet. Uh, didn't watch it yet. Oh well. But let me let me let me tell you. Uh, it sounds like Julie liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I was reading Mr. Jim Moon's review of it, and he did a very good review explaining, you know, that it's a very good movie, but also that it's it has a different ending. I think the ending sounds like it's been improved. I haven't read the story, so I can't say, but uh, it certainly has a great ending in the movie. Um, but also, he didn't mention in his review, it's fucking terrifying. It's really scary. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to go to sleep now because this is horrible. Well, the, the original story is like seven hours of um, of correspondence and then 30 minutes of action. So right. they, 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 they actually, well, actually, it's not seven hours. It's like, I think it's like two hours. I actually have a full reading of it on my website that I did. I love your reading. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I I love my Akeley and I love my, my go, but I'm not real fond of my narrator. <laughs> But that's because I'm very irritated with the narrator and it comes through in my reading. But I love my Akeley. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think I'm the only person who's actually Julie read Julie loves to play crazy old people. I do. I do. Uh, in, the, in both in my, in my Lovecraft pictures in the house, I had to play the old dude. But <laughs> the same. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Catched in the rain, be. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> but, so uh, uh yeah i i was saying you know this movie is it's not a normal movie it it, it doesn't have the pacing of a normal movie it, although the pacing picks up quite a bit uh near the end uh, or at least you well, know two-thirds in but it seems very faithful to like it, it it's a love letter to hp lovecraft stories rather than a then, uh, you know, like if you look at Dreams in the Witch House, it's a good adaptation of a story, uh, for Masters of Horror. It's a very good adaptation. However, it's not aimed at a Lovecraft lover. It's aimed at regular people and who've never seen a Lovecraft story. So it doesn't do the, like, there's a lot of time spent setting up the story and, you don't normally see that in film, so it seems a little bit unconventional, but it, it worked very well, I thought, and and it was it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was very fun and surprising and and terrifying. They got all the essence of the story very well in there, and that and like I said, they were doing it in a distinctive style, which is part of what the you know sort of the slow intro and then the more action. I mean, if you watch stuff like. Um, the, the creeping unknown or something. I think that's in the general 
general area they were aiming for. Okay. You know, is is it's more suspense and less action because it was cheaper to film back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked the way they included, and I I feel bad. I can't remember who it was. The the lecturer that he goes up and speaks to. Yeah, it's Charles Fort. Charles Fort. Yes, I thought that was pretty entertaining because that kind of sets you in a time period. Hmm. And I, I think I think that was actually Chris Lackey uh, who. Uh, playing Charles Ford. Uh, that could be. I, I, oh. That's a Merco question. <laughs> um, and that's Chris Lackey of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Right. Mm-hmm. I have two things to say. I'm pleased nobody mentioned them because, because I felt lazy because I hadn't. Uh, did anyone here read Septimus Felton? Ever? I'm not sure. Is that a story? Uh, well, according to the H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia, uh, Dreams of the Witch House was influenced by the book. Oh, it's it's right. a Nathaniel Hawthorne book, and oh. I well, an unfinished Nathaniel Hawthorne novel, oh, right. which which I found I could pick up at the local bookstore for ninety nine cents, and I just I can't do it. I'm. I... I like yeah. some of Hawthorne's work. I really do like some of Hawthorne's work. But an unfinished novel, particularly with characters with, with names like I don't know, some people get that, that type. There's a doc there's a Dr. Portsoken, uh, I think. <laughs> and uh Robert Is that an alcoholic? I I don't know. In the part, <laughs> but there but there's another character, Robert Hagburn. And it seems to deal with witchcraft in a way, so I thought, nah, I, I hope those were going to be oh fake names he was going to start off with. But well, oh you look back at his era, like Charles Dickens, and yeah. there was a lot of that goofy, literal naminess going on. Also, has anyone seen the movie Curse of the Crimson Altar? Which oh, is, God. It's apparently yes. also an adaption of Dreams of the Witch House. In but, that it has a witch, a house, and some dreams, and that's really about the extent of it. Part of me keeps saying, my God, a, a Lovecraft adaption with Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff and Barbara Steele. But every time I read a review for it, it's a, uh, oh, God, avoid it. I wish this had been burned. So I don't know. I keep thinking I should watch it, but um, I've seen it recently, well, a couple of years ago. Uh, afterwards, I was like, this is supposed to be Lovecraft. What story? Uh, <laughs> and everybody's know. like, "Dreams in the Witch House." I'm like, "Because there's a witch and a house and dreams." Well, you think about what was it? Die monster, die. Yeah. A, a movie I actually have have an odd fondness for, despite its. its <laughs> it, it, my problem with that movie is is its main protagonist. I don't know who that charmless barking Jersey ass was supposed to be. Look, you've been keeping a lot of secrets around here. This is the guy I'm supposed to look as the center. Well, whatever. doesn't matter. It had Boris Karloff. It had a lot of interesting atmosphere, but really the only thing that connects it to, to, um, uh, color of space is, well, there's a meteor and people seem to get, you know, destroyed by being in its presence. Some dissolve, some just go mad. Some, Plants turn into giant man eaters. 
<laughs> well, now, for all that, the curse, which was made in the 80s with Claude Aiken, was a much better adaptation of Color Out of Space. That's <laughs> <laughs> not saying much, but... Lovecraft has really been adapted correctly ever. No, I, no, I, I, I like some of his movies, so, some of the movies that have been adapted off them, but rarely has... The, I got into an argument with somebody over, over this about Robert Howard. I, I said that there's never, ever been a proper Conan story. The, the best thing Robert Howard's ever had adapted was an episode of, uh, of Thriller, which, for, which was... The Boris Karloff precisely, uh, show. Precisely. Yeah. They, they, adapt, they adapted, I think it was uh, The Pigeons from Hell. I thought it was, a gen, it was genuinely good. But no, I, I think The Resurrected was quite good. And I go completely against the tide and will stand by the movie Bleeders. But, um, or Hemoglobin is the other title. It's the one, there, there's two adaptations of The Lurking Fear. One has Rutger Hauer as the drunken town doctor and one has Jeffrey Combs as the drunken town doctor. In neither one, which is a character that never appeared in the original book anyway. But, um, the, the Jeffrey Combs one is the Stuart Gordon slash Full Moon mm-hmm. version and, Leaders is the Rutger Hauer one, and I, apart from the monsters looking completely dorky, because they do, um, I thought it was actually well done for a micro budget with Rutger Hauer. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>